You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. All right, not even seven days ago, we were talking on this very podcast about time trials, how important it is. We put a call to action out there to do a time trial. And Kirk, you painted yourself into a corner without discussing it prior. You kind of just blurted out, yeah, I'll do one this week. And then when we hung up, you're like, shoot, <laughs> looks like I have to do a time trial this week. And normally this might be the kind of thing you let slide, but you would put it out there that other people should hold them accountable. You even talked about accountability partners and you messaged me like minutes later saying, hey, am I crazy to think that I should just go do this right now? It's going to be rainy and cold tomorrow and it's nice today, but I just did mm-hmm. 17 hard two days ago. And yep. like, like a good, thoughtful coach, I said, get after it. <laughs> you did. You did. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I think with a time trial, it's just one of those things you got to rip the bandaid off. It doesn't matter. Your excuses don't matter how you're feeling that day. If you're PMSing, if you had a tummy ache, if you like, you just got to go and do it. And so after our call on, we recorded the podcast for Tuesday on Monday. And literally after we hung up, I was like, Bracken, I think I'm on a time trial. And I followed through with the accountability piece. I needed a little help. I needed that push to go out and do it. Um, So I did it. And I'm glad I did. And we've had a few listeners now I've seen uh, finally show us some posts about they're uh, about to get after it too. So you helped me through it. Because honestly, Bracken, if I didn't send that text out to you and I didn't let you know that I was probably going to do this, I may have pushed it off a day. So it worked. It worked. Yeah. Accountability partners are a real thing in this world, people. And it's not just for life. It's for running, which also is life. Yeah. I had a, I had a few clients actually reach out to me this week and say, Hey, can we change my plan this week so I can time trial? And I was like, hell yeah, we can Let's change, <laughs> let's change that up right now. I like that. So you didn't just time trial. You, you had a, a very good time trial. Yeah, I was happy with it. I was, uh, I ran almost perfectly even splits at 509. I was really impressed with that, by the way. I was trying to impress you because you knew I was out there doing it. I sent you that text. Yeah, so I was happy. I ran 1558 on the road by myself. And I interrupted you. you. Give the people your splits. 509, 509, 509. That, it, you, that, that's pretty consistent. Yeah, I got lucky. I got lucky. But I, uh, you know, I had, you know, it was actually a confidence booster for me in a sense that sometimes we don't give ourselves enough credit where our baseline fitness can be at. And it's easy to think you're not in the shape that you actually may be. And so there's two sides of the coin. One side of the coin is you could time trial and be humbled, and then that should motivate you to train harder. Or you can time trial and be pleased and say, okay, like I can be smart and build with purpose and choice and and not feel panicked. And now all of a sudden I feel like I'm in control of my training instead of behind any eight ball, even though I come off a recovery week two weeks ago. So for me, like it served a purpose. And if it went bad, it would have served a purpose that way too. Uh, you notice I'm doing something weird with my hands right now. Yeah, yeah what, are you, what are you doing down there? I had to pull the old unbutton the top button of my pants because I was pushing too tight on my stomach. <laughs> did, you, did you have a big breakfast? I did and I did not work out this morning. Oh, that must be, you look a little rounder in the face. I oh, I'm a bit what... rotund. Our daughter uh, needed some extra sleep and she came in and got me last night at like three and I ended up just cuddling her in bed till like eight. Oh, uh, so like, you've been up since three? 
No, 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 no. I, I fell back asleep, but uh, she sleeps really well if someone's cuddling her. So I, I slept in this morning, not slept in. I, I was awake, but I stayed there with her just to get her some sleep. She's been a crabby mess. But anyways, oh. I didn't work out and had a big old breakfast. Now my pants are a little snug. Yeah, with a little chubby. That's uh, your dad. With all these skinny pants I've been rocking in quarantine. <laughs> yeah, it must be. You, um, enough about my time trial, Bracken. You, uh, you, no, 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 not enough time. yet. I have one important comment to make about yours, piggybacking off what you said about you can surprise yourself as runners or athletes of all types, both like the media narrative, the fans' narrative, and our own internal narrative is, is what have you done for me lately? And mm. that not just happen, that doesn't just go with performances and races. It also goes with training. And you came off a build where you were talking, man, I'm, I'm popping some workouts. I'm feeling great. I'm going to take my down week and then rebuild. And suddenly after your down week, your body remembered, I'm finishing an off season yeah. rather than I'm pretty fit. And I recovered and regenerated for a week. And I've been there. You've been there. Other people have been, but it like you had a season in microcosm right there where you went from feeling pretty darn good about yourself to, oh, I got a time trial in my first week back to running. And that's a that, that's like a weighty feeling to have. But the good takeaway for people is that all your work isn't negated by taking a week or two down. And no. your time trial proved that. To go run 509 back to back to back shows that you can obviously run faster than that if you like gunned your head if you were in a race or something like that. And that's a great place to be at coming out of a down week. But a down week doesn't spell doom for your fitness. It's just a reset. Correct. And sometimes those down weeks are a chance for your body to absorb the hard work that you've done up to that point. Like you can come out a few weeks after a down week, even more fit than you went into it because you finally gave your body the chance to, to take advantage of all the hard work. Like you need to take down time in order to absorb your training. And I will say something about that. And I've learned this over the years is that, um, I did three hard cardio cross training bouts the week of my off week from running very intense short intervals on the assault bike that were, you know, half hour, 45 minutes total, but very painful. And I still got done with that week feeling very recovered, very refreshed, but like, I felt like I jumped right back into running and I didn't lose a step. I had renewed vigor for running. I was chomping at the bit, but like I didn't get set back because I put a small amount of time into cross training that week. at short, intense bouts. So it's just a testament that if you are taking a recovery week or you're banged up, I got a couple clients that are nursing injuries right now. And I said, great, we're taking the week off. You're going to hit these three key cross training bouts this week. You're not going to lose a step, I promise you. So just something to think about moving forward for you guys that a few strong cardio bouts on an off week, cross training cardio bouts can really sustain your fitness while still reinvigorating like you're running. Yeah, that's that's perfectly summed up. I love that. Um, not to spend too much time on my time trial. because I want to hear about happened. it. Hasn't even happened yet. Well, who does a hundred? Okay, so Bracken said he's going to do a hundred mile bike time trial, which is like that's like one of the more ludicrous things to choose because it's such there's a some rationale walk. behind that. I understand you need to suffer, right? But I mean, Matt, I wanted- but also like eventually, my long term goal, my entire life, I've wanted to uh, to do an Ironman, but not just do one, but qualify for the Ironman Age Group World Championships in Kona. Whether mm-hmm. I go or not is immaterial; it doesn't matter. It's the the concept of going after that. And I want a baseline goal of how, like, can I keep in my like baseline fitness? Can I bike a split on a hundred miles that would be like in the ballpark of what I need to do to get to Kona? So it's just like a mental thing. But then also there's this concept, this uh, DIY gravel. Have you seen that hashtag floating around? Yeah. I don't know what that means though. So there's this, uh, this, this gravel bike extraordinaire guy. I'm blanking on his name right now, but go check out Ryan Atkins Instagram. He's, he's got some links to it. He's used that hashtag. This guy is, uh, 
a prolific racer and has decided he wants to get people to still do their races on the date they had scheduled so that they stay focused and don't lose out on all their motivation. So on mm-hmm. the day or weekend, within a week of the, the the event that you had on your original calendar, you would go out and you do that race distance. You try to match the elevation profile and terrain and you just do it solo. And then you tag him and post your results. And he's got a bunch of awesome sponsors and he's sending out like prizes to people and stuff. Not based on performance, just based on completion. So Atkins did like a 62 mile gravel bike the other day. And it doesn't have to be a gravel race. That's just his realm, but any type of race for it. And Lindsay uh, did a hundred yesterday. And then uh, Aaron Newell went out and did a hundred yesterday just for fun. So like I was wavering a bit on, should I really do this right now? But uh, they both did it. I feel like without knowing it, they're my accountability partner. They, Mm. They got it done. I can go do it. I will add in there that Atkins also, I believe, then did a Killington sim yesterday. If yes, you look at his, so, anyways, people are hitting it. They're they must have listened to our podcast on Tuesday, Bracken, and then they decided to go time trial. That's what I'm thinking. I can't think of any other reason. No other reason. So, so okay, so there's hundred from the bike shop. Yeah, I got a call from the bike shop. The There were two things I couldn't get working on my bike. The chain wouldn't get to the highest uh, ring. One of my gears, just it wouldn't go up to that. And then there's some funkiness with one of the cables being a little too tight and short. So they, they got that sorted. I can go pick it up today. I'm going to dial in my position today. And then tomorrow or Saturday, based on the rain, I'm going to go out and I guess hammer a hundred. Yeah. It's really going to be hold back for like 50 and then work hard for 25 and then hold on for 25. What uh, what do you have in mind? I know you have rolling terrain sort of where you live, but it's more flat than I would say a lot of other people in the country. What is your goal? Yeah. Like, what do you think if you can hold, let's say it's a calm, relatively calm day. Do you have like a pace in mind uh, that you'd like to hold? I mean, realistically, I want to average 20 miles per hour for the whole thing. But I just don't think that that's feasible right now. I've also never ridden this bike. I'm going to ride it like for a total of 30 minutes, just dialing in my position. And then I'm going to go out and see what you can do on 100. So. Wow. That's not like your best <laughs> idea you, know, you can have, but I like the idea of like new and fresh and just have some unknown. I think probably realistically on the terrain I'll do, I think 17 and a half miles per hour average over the course of this. Um, you know, it's a road bike. I'm not going to have any fancy doodads on it, but I think 17 and a half to 20 is my goal range. Yeah, I think that's fair. I know when I hop on the bike and I have not been biking for a while, even holding 20 miles an hour, if I'm going for like a 40 mile ride, 20 mile an hour is like a pretty good rate of work by the end of that thing. Um, if I'm not biking a ton, I know you've been biking, but it hasn't, you know, not, it's not time on the bike. Yeah, exactly. So I think even if you hold, I'd say if you held 18 and a half miles an hour for a hundred miles, that would be a stud effort in my opinion, 18.5. That's what I'm calling right now. Yeah, I'd be happy with that. Yeah. I did 50 the other day at like 17.8 average. And that included, um, that included like 60 seconds of not moving time. I just, it was a time trial. So I didn't stop the watch while I was futzing with stuff on the bike. And that was a steel bike. So I'd like to think that I could go faster with less effort on my bike. Uh, and then just double it. Yeah. Easy enough. And, uh, I would say, do you notice this on the bike rack? And when I go for long bike rides, I haven't since last season, but I noticed that, the bonk on that bike is harder than any bonk that you'll experience once it happens to you, even more so than running for me when I bonk on the bike. So you just got to stay ahead of your nutrition, at least for me when I'm on. I've never bonked on a bike because you're gonna, I don't you're gonna, like gonna, one off. You're going to this weekend. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. I've, I've bonked on running and I can't imagine <laughs> it being worse if it, it is. is. Oh man. It is. So I'm going to really slow play it. I'm going to listen to an audio book for the entire way out. 
so that I have to like stay under my limit so that I'm like paying attention to the book and rather than like trying to work. And then when I get around, I'm going to turn on a jam fest and then I'm going to try to get to work. Well, okay, and then I'm so, going to come up short by like 20 to 40 miles. <laughs> okay. So what audiobook and what like Pandora station or Spotify playlist or jam? I listened to, for this one, it j- just my, I had a Jack Reacher book on hold at our local library and it went through. <laughs> so that's, that's all dialed up. So some Jack Reacher by Lee Child. Nice. Disappear into some crime action mystery. And then Rick Ross station. <laughs> Rick Pandora. Ross. Rick Ross is my work. If I have a Rick Ross mix on, I can work out with probably any planet, any athlete on any planet in the galaxy. Now in the galaxy. Now I know you like your women, uh, your women artists. I thought you'd go back to like some Evanescence or like, uh, you know, a little Alanis Morissette or something. You know, horses for courses. I think I need Rick Ross to get me through this one. <laughs> All right, folks, you heard it. He's going to show us what his 100-mile time trial is on your Strava. Upload it to Strava, Brack, and you don't do that enough. No, I don't. The people want to know. I haven't been outside doing stuff. I've been inside and I don't know. It just it feels mm-hmm. weird to put a manual entry for a stared master. But anyways, we are 13 minutes into this episode and it is time to get to the episode. That was a long preamble. Today's guest is my esteemed colleague, Kirk DeWint. Last week, if you didn't tune in, we had Kirk interview me as Get to Know Your Host Part 1. And this is Part 2, Get to Know Your Other Host. The hostess with the most is Kirk DeWint. And Kirk... And like with with no more further ado, take us back, rewind yeah. in time to when little Kirky became or started planting the seeds for who you are today. It's funny, all my uh, my family calls me Kirky. Still, I'm you know. So your mom said I reached my, out to her about this episode. I'm sure you did. Yeah, my mom. You wouldn't even know how to get in touch with my mom. She, <laughs> she uh, called me. Oh, she calls you. Oh, uh, <laughs> so we're going back to the beginning, huh, Bracken? Yeah, to the beginning. Mm-hmm. I started back at crawling around in a diaper, hitting a ball with a bat. What was the moment Kirk DeWintz showed flashes of who you are? You know what? I think I bet you a lot of people have this similar story in the sense that I was a child who couldn't sit still for more than 30 seconds. You could call it ADD or you could just call it like a surplus of young energy. And that was me. So me like gravitating towards sitting inside playing video games or doing those things like didn't appeal to me even a little bit. Um, And I was always a kid who was up at five in the morning when I was, you know, three or eight or 10 or 12. Like I was a kid who just wanted to get up and get outside. So um, I would say like the foundation of like movement started like, I don't know, as soon as I knew how to like walk, to be honest, when I was growing up, um, my dad uh, was an accomplished runner uh, and my parents divorced when I was seven. So I didn't, I split time between the two. But before that, um, I would go to his races. He would go run road races on the weekends and stuff. And um, he was like a 35 minute 10 K or maybe, but in Green Bay, Wisconsin, you know, the big city that was, uh, that was quick enough to like place in the top five in most races. So when I remember like some of my youngest memories, I'd like, go watch my dad like race like a road race and I'd sit there and cheer I didn't really understand what was going on but I knew I wanted to do that so some of my first memories actually like when you start to comprehend like like your consciousness was like riding my bike along with my dad as he went for runs uh that sort of thing but I don't remember like I don't have any early memories of like sitting inside doing anything I'm always like outside doing something I would say that was like 
those are like some of my first memories. That's interesting. Now you alluded to it, maybe we'll get to it more later, but I think I want the audience to know that your dad was more than just a 35 minute 10K runner later in life. Uh, give, give me some, your background bio on your father. And then, uh, yeah, he was, um, he's a farm kid. He was one of 10, 10 kids. In fact, my whole family. So I'm from Green Bay, Wisconsin, um, which I'm sure a lot of you sports fans probably makes you not like me already. However, uh, and my, my dad and mom both grew up in small towns. So my dad was one of 10 kids, grew up on a farm. And he was one of the oldest. So um, as all the other kids were like, parents were just trying to keep him alive. You know, he was like kind of on his own, I feel like. But he um, he ended up joining track and cross country in high school. Uh, his first year in cross country was his senior year of high school. The school did not have a cross country program and he won state. Uh, didn't didn't <laughs> know what didn't know what he had possessed. Um, and he had run track two years, I believe, uh, prior to that. So he knew he was decent, but he had a running pedigree, um, no coaching, no idea what he was doing. His coach would send him out for a 5k run every day, go run out of bed state champ first try. Uh, yeah, but I'll tell you, he, from what I understand, he, um, he didn't get it right. Like his first race. In fact, I think he was started like the third or fourth on his team that year. He lost at the sectional meet going into state to his own teammate. And then at state, he put it all together and won by what he says is about 100 yards. That's how they quantify things back then. I don't know his time. I don't know anything. But yeah, so he was a good runner that way. Um, so I just kind of, I don't know. I always looked up to him when I was really little, especially going out and running. Uh, he no longer runs today's little banged up. But um, yeah, so that was be his background. So you grew up watching your dad. And what was your introduction then? In, in your childhood, were you right into sports or did you have other passions? Um, that's a good question, man. I was, uh, I was kind of a, I was a shyer kid. I know that might be hard for you to believe, but I was a little shyer. I was probably one of the more quiet ones in like elementary school, uh, beginning of middle school. I was more like a, a wallflower instead of, you know, I did not like the eyes of me. Maybe the kid who went up and if it was like time to give a speech. I would turn beet red and it was obvious I was more uncomfortable than anything. You and I both. You were that way too? Yeah, this is not about me, but I almost I'm dropped out of the out of the school of education because I couldn't talk in front of people. Uh, really? Seriously, like I dreaded student teaching with every fiber of my being. It was awful. And that was in your that was in your uh, like your what twenty? <laughs> yeah, I would I would have been nineteen, almost twenty, still considering not becoming a teacher because I couldn't speak. <laughs> <laughs> I think you grew out of that bracket eventually. Just reps, right? Yeah, man. Yeah, but I. Uh, that's where it kind of started, but I did this. Some reason, do you remember the? I don't know if they have these anymore. They're the Hershey races. Yeah, the Hershey it's, track meets. The Hershey track meets. Well, somehow a Hershey track meet came to Green Bay. God, and I think I was fifth grade, maybe sixth grade, fifth fifth grade or sixth grade. Anyways, and so uh, my dad was just like, "Hey, there's this Hershey track meet," or my mom, one of the two. And I said, well, yeah, obviously I'm a runner because my dad's a runner, whatever. So I entered the 800 meters. I've never run anything before. Um, I led the first quarter mile like it was only a quarter mile. And I basically walked the whole second lap. And I was so embarrassed. I never wanted to run again. In fact, I didn't. I didn't go. I didn't run for four more years after that because I was so ashamed. Really? Oh, I got so smoked bracket. It was so humbling. And my little family came out and everybody thought I'd crush it. And I got I got smoked. I mean, it was like tears and I hate this and I want to go home. My first experience was sour. Did you ever do a Hershey track meet? 
I I don't know. No, no. We had Badger State Games. You remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember Badger State Games. So Badger State Games and Junior Olympics, I would do every year from like third grade on. But I was I did the 100 and the 200 every year. I was a sprinter at that <laughs> oh, age. Oh, come on, really? Everybody yeah. was a sprinter at that age. Yeah. Um. Yeah, but that was my first running memory, man. I got just trumped. It was, and there were only like four kids in the race, and they all beat me by like half a lap. Yeah. And it had nothing to do if I just would have knew what I was doing and I had some guidance, I think I could have maybe even won or run with everybody. But when you have a 50 meter lead after the first lap and then you lose that 50 meter, it was a pretty humbling day. Pretty humbling day Brad. So you yeah. went fifth grade to ninth grade without joining structured running. What, what did you fill your time with? No, eighth grade, uh, eighth grade. Oh. I actually joined um, as an athlete. So uh, I played soccer growing up. Because I was so shy, I was one of those kids that would just like follow the corral of kids around the ball. I don't know if you recall that phase of soccer, where it's just like one mob following the ball. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you poke at it. Um, and then I started playing a lot with my buddies around the around the house. And I was a very good athlete. I was just a little timid mentally. Um, and I found a coach my, in fifth grade who um, realized that I was actually good and I was like kind of holding myself back, so to speak. And he sort of gave me the talks I needed and blah, blah, blah. Well, I went from scoring zero goals the first four games to scoring a hat trick or more the rest of the season. And in that fifth in that fifth grade season, uh, I realized, like, I uh, quit being shy. Like, that's not the purpose of, like, this. Uh, I don't know. I learned so. I don't know what it was about something like a switch flip. So then soccer was all I get, cared about. Soccer, 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 soccer. So then I started playing traveling competitive soccer at a high level. Um Moving forward, I quickly became the captains of all my traveling teams. We were moving around. Everything was just soccer, soccer, soccer uh, growing up. And that's what I thought I would be. I thought I'd be a soccer player. So you you asked me a question. When did that dream die for baseball? Uh, when when yeah. did that dream die? Like what, 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 how did that run its course? It ran its course when my track coach, my junior year of high school, said, Kirk, I think it's time you start taking this running thing seriously because I was very doing very well, but I would have a soccer game in the springtime. I would have a soccer game and then I would go to track practice afterwards or I would have a, or vice versa. And I was showing up like dogged and I was starting to run into injury issues. I had a back issue. I was starting to get stress fractures in my shins, which I'm still dealing with. So having all these issues and he said, Kurt, you got to decide what, what is uh, what Avenue for you is going to be best. And I'm telling you that running is your running is your thing. Like you need to listen to me on this. And I fought it, man. I fought it. In fact, I had that conversation with myself um, going into high school. I went out and tried out for the soccer team. And at my high school, we only have JV and varsity. There's no freshman team. So they take maybe a handful of freshmen, mostly sophomores and a few juniors on JV. And then varsity is the stud. So not a lot of freshmen make the team. Well, uh, the first day of practice, we have something called the T. And the T is where you basically just run down to a T in the road and come back. It's three miles. It's nothing. And it was this big dreaded day of our soccer tryouts. And I said, well, if I'm going to get attention, it's going to be now. And I, I won that, the T by like three minutes. And the upper, yeah, as a freshman, and the upperclassmen were pissed at me. Like, you made us look bad. And I got shunned by everybody because I left them. And Isn't they that funny? It's, isn't it? It is funny. As a team member, you should be thrilled that we've got a guy with some juice on the team. <laughs> and instead, you're immature and it's like, nope, I can't handle that blow to my ego yet. Yeah, some guy actually came up to me. I started just doing my thing right away. And I remember one of the seniors came up to me. He ran, like sprinted to catch up to me. And he was like, 
dude, you better fucking hold back, man. He's like, you can't make us look bad. We don't want to work too hard today. We got a whole day of tryouts. He's like, come back and join us. And I was like, okay, fine. And then I just kept running fast. I just ignored him. So I got back and everybody was pissed at me. Nobody would talk to me. And all I remember is coming back from that day and coach was like, what's your name again? And I was like, it's Kirk DeWitt, sir. And, and he wrote something down on his little piece of paper. And I was like, that's ah, probably worth it. Yeah. So, I made, so I made the team. So I made the soccer team as a freshman in high school. We had a good soccer team. We went to like st- uh, the state tournament where they don't take a lot of teams. You know, We had an accomplished uh, soccer program. And it came to our first uh, our first soccer game, and I sat the bench. I didn't play a minute. I didn't play anything. And I cared too much about it. I My ego was starting to get bruised. And I still was being treated differently by the other kids. Like, they just didn't like me. And it all came back to that stupid run. I swear it came back to that run. There, I had a few friends on the team, but, like, nobody passed me the ball. And that's how I felt at the time. I'm sure maybe I'm looking at this biased. So uh, our game was on that Saturday. I did not show up to uh, soccer practice on Monday afternoon. I went to the cross-country coach, and I said, can I, can I join the team? And I quit soccer after the first game. Wow. Did you that's continue to play traveling ball? Yep, I played traveling ball all the way through junior year when I had that conversation with my track coach about maybe picking my avenue. Yeah, interesting. So, so I quit the high school. I quit the high school soccer team to run uh, cross country. Um, and the interesting thing about, about that was is we had a meet on Tuesday. So I showed up to cross country practice on a Monday as a freshman, and I was an underdeveloped freshman like you, uh, maybe like five six, hundred and ten pounds. I looked like like a little girl, <laughs> I mean, honestly. And so he put me in JV, of course, because I didn't even run once with the team. And I won by three and a half minutes. I soccer practice and had me in just enough shape where um, I must have had something to me. And I would have taken second in the varsity race. There was a there was a golf cart leading me through the JV race. And I remember running and people are be like, did that kid cut the course? Where did he come from? Uh, and on that day, that was that was it for me, man. Like without question, at JV day. That's awesome. Yeah, that is, that is really cool. So freshman then through junior year, I assume you progress decently well, and you get to junior year, you have enough potential that your cross country coach wants you to give up traveling soccer, AU soccer, and you yep. still have passion for soccer. Yeah. Did you have interest from colleges either direction at that point? Um, you know, I guess maybe you don't know. Maybe you do know this. Really, if you're like a, an accomplished high school athlete, you get you start getting your recruitment letters your junior year. They start I, this. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't mature me. early enough. I didn't get <laughs> anything junior year. Yeah, I started getting uh, recruitment letters um, junior year based off of my like sophomore running year times, I think, and mm-hmm. and maybe after junior cross country or something like that. But uh, I still wasn't sure to be honest with you. But the problem is at that age, if you don't play high school sport, like like competitive traveling soccer doesn't get a lot of eyes on it. Just like if you play competitive traveling summer league basketball, it doesn't get a lot of eyes on it. Most recruiters are looking at the high school performances. So not as interesting because now that shifted. Has it? Not when I was playing. Yeah. I mean, not even when I was in school, I'm not much younger than you, but like in the most recent generation, you can get away with just playing traveling ball because there's eyes everywhere, social media videos of everything. You can get away with that now. especially some small town kids. It's hard to tell if they will translate to big leagues, but traveling teams play traveling teams. Yeah, that's a good point. That's not how it felt when I was in school. Oh, and I'm sure it wasn't. So yeah, I didn't, I didn't get recruited uh, very much at all for soccer, mostly because I think I stopped just a hair too early. 
but it was, I mean, that's the sport that got me the most excited. I, again, was captain of my traveling squads. Um, I think I was more of a leader by example at that point. Like I just worked hard. I didn't mouth off. I wasn't the kid who had something to say to everybody. I just worked hard, put my nose down and did it. So that's more how I led. But um, anyways, yeah, it just uh, the, that conversation. I think we all get to that point, don't we? And like our, whether it's our like professional career, or athletic career, where like you're like, shit, like the road's got to split here and I got to pick a direction. You hit it. Yep. And oftentimes it's not leading in the direction of your perceived first passion. Right. So true. I avoided running for years. I, after that first Hershey race, we had the mile time trials at gym class and I would run, I think I ran six, 555 as a sixth grader or something in that. And my track coach came and said, Hey, we got to get you to join the team. And I was so afraid of embarrassing myself again that I couldn't even bring myself to join the middle school track team. I remember my, my, in eighth grade, I think I ran like 540 now at like the gym class mile. And again, he's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I can't do it. Like, I don't want to. I'm too scared. So I didn't join again just because, and I enjoyed soccer at the time too. Yeah, it was, uh, I really pushed it away. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's, that's really interesting that running doesn't have the seductive quality to it. It's that it's the acquired taste of running. You know what the I years think? of work you put in makes you fall in love with it. It's so true. It's like, uh, it's like trying to like skirting the obvious for years because there's other like shiny objects to chase, but you ultimately realize like, cause I mean, isn't, isn't like endurance sports and running like the least shiny of all objects when you're in the athletic world. Yeah. It, it really is. I mean, even just like to a young boy, that body is such an important thing to a young boy looking up at what the example for a man is. And like the, uh, the perfect, like formulated football player is jacked perfect basketball player is very muscular. The perfect baseball player is very muscular. The perfect runner is a stick. Yeah. And, and there's no way around that at the elite level. And it's just not a body type alone that a, a young boy would aspire to because so every young boy is little and every young boy wants to be bigger. And, and that alone, if there was nothing else, that alone like prevents so many people from aspiring to be a great runner. It's kind of true. I mean, the fact that I joined soccer as a freshman in high school, one was because I wanted to like meet girls and I knew that the soccer kids were cool and that would help that way. I wanted to be popular as everybody at that age does. And I knew soccer would help lead me in that direction. I wanted to uh, be part of a, I don't know, it just had this like cooler vibe to it. And that was more of the draw than anything. And the running draw was like, you know, when you looked at it and you looked at the kids on the team before I knew it, it was like just like a bunch of misfits and cerebrals out there running because they weren't good at anything else. It's like how it was looked at, and that's horrible. And I bet you that still goes on today. But I remember looking at it that way. And yeah. so, so yeah, so soccer was like the shiny object. It's tough as a underdeveloped freshman boy, too. Not to take it away from the female, but I just don't have that perspective. Having lived oh. through it, our fresh in our high school, they'd announce all the accomplishments over the weekend with the morning announcements on Monday. Yeah, they did that at ours too. And I couldn't wait my freshman year for cross country to end, so I'd stop hearing my people would stop hearing my announcements as a runner and start hearing it for basketball. So I was just like, "Oh man, I'm getting pigeonholed." <laughs> oh no, like, <laughs> I'm now that kid who's good at running rather than mm -hmm. like that stud athlete who's desirable and and like there's no other maybe swimming in high school there are very yeah. few sports that you would look at your success and like shy away from it it's so it's so true man it really is um 
and my and it also I think a lot of it has to do with like where your friends go to. If you have a couple of friends, you can say it's a social thing too. And a lot of my friends are doing soccer. So, anyways, yeah. So that that was a that was an interesting blip for me. But my freshman year of cross country, um, I, I ended up switching over right, and I and I won that JV race. And I thought I cut the course because I didn't freaking see anybody. I think I ran eighteen. 1851, by the way, or something. Eight, no, 1820 something. I read 1848. I you think did? my freshman year. Uh, it was 1820, 23 or something. It was like a relatively hilly course, whatever. I've worked hard. I've never worked that hard in my life. Um, but anyways, I got pumped to varsity right away. And uh, we had a bunch of upperclassmen. And this is still like, I'm still feeling this out, right? As a freshman, like I switched soccer. I'm still like peeking at soccer practice as I'm out there running with the cross country team now saying, I wish I was with the soccer guys and all that. You know, I was like, ah, now they're looking at me and they're pointing and making fun of me running by being like that loser couldn't hang. Like I was still feeling that a little bit, you know, um, but I got bumped to varsity. And so then the varsity meet started and our third meet of the year was the Green Bay City meet. And for some reason, the press has nothing better to do then show up at these like high school events in Green Bay. There's a lot going on. So like sports, like high school sports makes the front page sometimes. And it definitely makes the front page at the sports section. You have camera crews out there. Like they did a really good job of covering like media. I have a whole scrapbook that my mom put together with probably 80 articles in it from my running career in high school because wow. I, oh yeah, I should, I should, it's a little brag thing. But anyways, so we went to the high school, the Green Bay, uh, the Green Bay cross country meet three weeks later. And I ran 1704 and I took third place and I lost by seven seconds as a freshman. Yeah. I had no idea that was in me. Um, And I got a little bit of like, oh, here's this young kid who, you know, could blow away in the wind and he took third place. And I got a little, you know, I think it was like that meet where um, I was like, oh man, like I kind of like this. Like maybe I just going to, I'm going to start accepting this. So we went on that season. You cut off 30 seconds per mile in three weeks. Yeah. Something like that. That's crazy, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah, but that's just youth and that's just like yeah. learning what the heck you're doing. But uh, we had a bunch of upperclassmen on the team and uh, we went to state for the first time in, I don't know, 30 years. Uh, we ended up being the second team out of sectional and we went to state. I was a freshman with a bunch of upperclassmen who went to state and the upperclassmen were a bunch of really solid kids and they they had thanked me so much. Like you are the blessing. Like you came over late. We didn't think we had a team. You ended up not only being our fifth guy, but you ended up, I ended up leading the team in a few races. And so the team took me out after the season and they got me drunk. (laughs) We went out into a technical college parking lot and drank. uh, I think they gave me a Colt 45 or something. (laughs) And they got drunk with the, with the high school team. And it was like that bonding experience and like that appreciation, like that's actually probably where it started. So it was like that. Then, then I was, I had an idea, like, okay, maybe I should like accept this. And I still pursued the soccer thing for years because it was still enjoyable. And I still thought there was a chance, but like, that was probably my moment. Drinking beers in a parking lot, honestly. Yeah. Well, night and day reception compared to the soccer team upperclassmen. Totally. I was being thanked for being there and the other soccer kids thought I was, you know, a loser. So. Yeah. That, was, that was nice. Yeah. So that was, uh, that was my first experience. In fact, we, um, so they had drunk and there's a few kids that didn't drink, which, uh, you know, of course you respect and they were driving. And so we went to, um, we went to Perkins at like 11 o'clock at night, right? Which is where it all began and went to a Perkins and I'm what, 14. I don't know. Well, somebody had had a little too much, one of the seniors and he threw up on my jacket. 
no it was just like an old adidas girls jacket and so and i had like three beers and that was enough to make a wind that was windbreaker material that doesn't do well with vomit (laughs) it was the wind it was was like a forest green anyway so we went to perkins and i'd throw up on my jacket it wasn't my throw up uh but anyways and so i forgot my jacket at perkins uh i don't know what it was like you know 10 degrees out and i was in a t-shirt and i walk back in the house in a t-shirt and my mom's standing there with her arms crossed she's like where the fuck were you? And I was like, I was just hanging out with the guys, mom, like trying to pull it together. She's like, you're not wearing a jacket. It's 10 degrees out. And you left with a jacket. I was like, Oh shoot. I must've forgot it at Perkins. So she made me drive with her to Perkins and we got the jacket still sitting on the back of the chair, you know, and it's got throw up. All We've all been there leaving a vomit covered jacket at Perkins. <laughs> oh man. And you know what? She didn't even really care. I don't even know how to describe it. She was upset with me. But she kind of got it. Like the upperclassmen said, hey, can we take out your kid for the night? Say, like they did it right. Yeah. And then she realized we were out drinking. But anyways, someone threw up on my damn jackets. So that was, uh, but all that, that whole night, I'll never forget. That was a great night. It's a magical moment. Yeah. I still wore that jacket. I cleaned her up good. Don't worry. Got to. Yeah. So 1705 as a freshman? 1704. I ended up running one more time. I think like a second faster. At, a, at sectionals, I ran 1704. Oh. So yeah. how'd you progress then from freshman till junior year when that coach had to talk with you? Um, I didn't quite have the speed as a freshman in track. Uh, it didn't quite come around yet. So um, I then went on all our upperclassmen had graduated after my a lot of my freshman year. So uh, I was then the number one guy my sophomore year, junior year. We didn't have a lot of people running with me. We had a few kids that came on later, but um, I continue to get better. I won, I think most every meet my sophomore year. And again, I was a big fish in a small pond. I'm in green Bay, uh, Wisconsin. When I start looking at other times in the state, I realize like, Ooh, I'm good, but like, I'm not that good. And so, uh, it kind of became my identity. Just like you talk those like morning announcements. I remember my name and this week we have, you know, Kirk DeWitt wins this and that, and it started to feel a little bit good. I wasn't embarrassed to hear that anymore. And I think through all that, my confidence came around. So I wasn't like the shy meat kid anymore. I was like kind of happy to, I was like, finally like starting to become content with who I was, you know, like this is me and that's fine. Um, but uh, anyways, yeah, pro- running just progressed. I think I ran 1643 my sophomore year, 1630 my junior year. And then I was injured my senior year. I didn't run till midway through the season. I think I only ran 1627 or something. So I didn't progress that much. Um, and in track kind of the same, but just enough where I was getting good enough to get like a little bit of recruitment. But um, yeah, that became, that became life, man. And because there wasn't a ton of competition where I lived. Like I was, I was just racking up medals. You know what I mean? And well, and you and, learned how to race. There's something to be said for learning how to be in the front of a pack. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, I did. I did learn how to race. I definitely did. And we don't get me wrong. I got beat, and once in a while, I get I get smacked, and and a reality check would happen. But that was just I don't know. It was it was was what it was. I was showing up to morning 7 a.m. practices in the summer with the kids leading workouts doing that whole thing it just became me you know yeah um so that's that's what happened and we were and i was trying to make it all work for a while i was playing i was playing summer soccer traveling soccer then i was going into cross country in the fall then i go right into indoor soccer and we traveled for indoor soccer sometimes indoor soccer right into spring soccer overlapping with track so many days like i mentioned i would go from soccer practice to track practice i mean one day i remember having a soccer game I had a track meet and then I finished the track meet and went right to my soccer game. And these are these all out efforts, like back to back. You've been there. Yeah. You don't know any different. You just go and hustle. That's what, that's what it is. Yeah. 
That's interesting. So you're, you, you went in on running after your coach said you got to decide, did you have a big like leap forward with that <laughs> new, you know, mental focus or did it take until college till you got your next leap? Good. Uh, that's a good question. I think I did. So I left soccer my senior year. I said, okay, I'm going to focus on this. And what do you know? I, I got hurt. I got hurt. Oh uh, yeah. I was running 15 miles a week, 20 miles a week. I got hurt going into track season. So I had to take a full month off of running before practice started. I got hurt going into cross country season, had to take almost two months off. Both were stress fractures in my tibia. And uh, with that free time I had, was I was doing more running, ended up getting hurt. I learned some hard lessons that first year. And so my running got good. I mean, I went to state in track and I went to state and cross country all four years. I qualified with the team as a freshman and individually sophomore, junior and senior year. And then with the team in track, uh, I went in, in track two years. Um, but I didn't get that much better my senior year because I was banged up, man. It was like, it was all anticlimactic. Yeah, that's, that's tough. It's a, it's a brief snapshot of what happens to some people when they quit their day job to go full-time pro. It's so true. Some people get that instant boost up and some people run into some hardship when they have all the time in the world to do everything they want to do. And it doesn't always add up to a better final product. Yeah, it's true. It was like the first summers I was like, oh, this summer I'm going to run now. I'm going to run and get ready for cross country before my senior year. So I had to play soccer all summer. And I got a stress fracture in July <laughs> because I was running too much. And same thing happened leading into track. And hindsight, if I would have just played my traveling soccer and then played soccer again in the winter, I probably maybe would have been better off. But those are lessons you learn. I'll tell you what, I've learned a lot of those hard lessons with the injuries. And it started at a stupid young age. So I have that perspective. That's good. That is. So what brought yeah, you to UW Oshkosh from there? Uh, yeah, UWO. Uh, UW Zero is our uh, competitors like to call us. I've never heard that. UW Zero? Oh, and God. I went to a competitor of yours. Yeah. Huh. I chose I chose college based off of athletics solely. Um, I'll tell you what. And- of all the state schools, Oshkosh and Stevens Point were the two groups of guys we got along with the best. You guys always seem to have the most level-headed, like laid-back, normal people on your teams rather than robots or your typical distance runners or like the lacrosse crazy slash robotic vibe, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's how we felt about Whitewater too. Whitewater and Point, I feel like everybody was, was kind of like a group of similar dudes. And then you looked at other like like lacrosse. Nobody liked anybody that went to lacrosse. No. A bunch of freaking pricks. Weirdos and, and jerks. Yeah, weirdos Macaulay and jerks. went there. <laughs> oh, oh, that makes sense. He didn't get along with people there. I guess that doesn't surprise me. Yeah, Bragg and I went to the same. So I know you've heard this, but we have the WEAC conference, uh, which is like a bunch of like larger state schools, like 10,000, 12,000, 15,000 kids, but we're all division three. So we have like a really highly competitive, like Wisconsin state school college, like circuit. I'd say probably one of the best, or if not the best D3 conference in the nation yeah that and the suny schools out in new york are is the d3 i guess you call it powerhouse it's it's like it's not d1 and it's not high school but it's like the middle ground between there yeah like we had a bunch of athletes that could have and should have been running d1 the best guys in d3 could have run d1 yeah it's kind of the way it goes most of us couldn't yeah i would say that was that was accurate in fact we had a number of guys transfer from like they'd go to wisconsin for a year they'd go to illinois for a year and then they'd be like "Ah, i'm not feeling this vibe and they'd transfer to the wisconsin state schools and run the rest of their career and fly we had matt gross who ran 358 in college division three on my you know he's a teammate of mine so anyway some fast guys but um yeah i chose school of athletics and uh not academics and fact bracken this is embarrassing to admit but i was 
Guess what my GPA was after my sophomore year of college. Oh, we should play this game. Who had the worst freshman year GPA? Oh, I don't know what it was after my freshman year. I know what it was cumulative after my sophomore year. Though. All right, what was it? I had a 2.3 GPA after my sophomore year of college. What was yours? No, I don't know what my sophomore, but my freshman, I was a 1.7. Oh, no. <laughs> Why? Uh, we can get into this another way. I, I believe my D1 hype. I thought I was God's gift to that campus. Oh yeah. I didn't need to go to class very often. If I didn't feel like going, I wouldn't. I didn't do homework. I didn't study. I watched the 24 had just come out on Netflix. That was a big time in history. And Halo 2 was out. <laughs> you were the uh, you were the epitome of too cool for school. Oh man, I got the taste of freedom, and it did not sit well with me. <laughs> yeah, so one seven, and then I was probably around two 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 three two four that sophomore year. You were. I um. Point being, I was just thinking about athletics. I was going to school. I was going to class. I wasn't really studying much. I didn't know how to until uh, I realized after my sophomore year, you're going to be very proud of me, Bracken. I ended up 4 owing my last five semesters, and I graduated with like a 3.2. You probably had to to get into the school of whatever business you did. Well, no, I, I went to grad school for ex exercise physiology and sports psychology. Um, but yeah, so I, uh, I pulled my shit together eventually. But I still chose school off of athletics. And I had actually strung together my first, um, our cross country team was very accomplished. Uh, I think this might not mean a lot to you guys, but you take set, your top seven run, like your big races and then the rest, we have a 24 man roster. So you've got like, I don't know, 16 guys running smaller races or running like the JV race in college. Um, I mean, all of our guys at our best meets were running 25, 30 or under like seven of us, which is fast. For an 8K. So, yeah, so roughly five miles, just shy. So I was like our 12th guy as a freshman. And then track came around. And it was the first time I'd been healthy for a whole year. I like stayed healthy. I didn't get injured. I had no real breaks in my training. And my my fitness popped my freshman year of college. That's when I realized I was actually good. I qualified for Division One or Division Three uh, Nationals in the 1500 meters. And I actually got, got the call, man. They took 17 of us for the 1500 meters division three. And I was the 16th guy. So I had cool. qualified, qualified in front of one dude. So I was the 16th ranked freshman going into Nats, but I freaking made it. And I remember everybody, you know, after my 16th ranked overall, not just freshman overall. Yeah. Of, of all division three, 1500 meter runners. Um, What'd you run that year? Uh, 356, nothing crazy. 356, uh, three. Um, but I went to Nats and it was two heats. There were eight of us in one heat and I think, uh, what was it? Nine in the other. And the first heat went out slow and tactical and the winner ran like four Oh three. And my coach looked at me in the second, second qualifying round and said, just run your race. Now, like, now let's give the audience some background. If you haven't been to a nationals, how that works. Yeah. So, so basically at a national meet, uh, there's like the, the first round, let's just call it where there's multiple heats of the same event, and then they end up taking the top times from the multiple heats that will qualify under the final. first two finishers. Yep. And then the next, however many fastest times qualify. So if you win your heat, you're in automatically. Yep. And then the next fastest times go. So in case you get into a, a weird heat where 10 people run faster than the other heat, they don't punish you for that. Right, right. I think they actually took the top three from each heat and then okay. the rest online. Anyways, first heat went slow and tactical. I was not in that heat. We all saw that in the second heat and we all just put out a pace and everybody from the second heat qualified. Every single person swept the board. We all went in. So suddenly I'm the 16th ranked guy 
And now they took uh, 10 of us into the finals. And the cool thing about national D1 and D2 and D3 is that if you're top eight, you are, you earn all American status. It's not a voting thing for all all American and track or cross country. You just finish top whatever. And so if you take 10 to finals to be successful, you only have to beat two people. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Right. So suddenly here I'm the 16th ranked dude as a freshman uh, now I'm in the final with 10 guys. Somehow I squeaked my way into the finals. And I, by the way, I did beat one guy in that trials the day nice. before. So I, I wasn't dead last in my heat. So we went to the finals that next day. Um, and I was smoked. I was, didn't have enough mileage under my belt to run hard back to back days. I remember was towing that line in the warm up, being like, oh, this is going to be a long day. And we went out in 201. Okay. And a uh, coach said, you're going to hang on to that pack for dear life. And if you die and get lapped at the end, I don't even give a shit. Just set yourself up to succeed because all that matters is top eight or nothing. Uh, and he was right. And I held on to the back of the pack. Uh, we're one clump of dudes all the way through 800 meters. The leader and the winner from the year before got tripped and fell and stepped on and spit out the back. So now there's nine of us left. <laughs> I almost Now, now you got to pick out one guy. <laughs> Now there's one left. If I can beat one dude, this other dude's 10, 10 meters behind. You can't catch up in a race like that at that pace. And he was the favorite to win. So now there's nine of us left. We uh, we got about 600 meters to go. Now I stepped on the guy, in fact, when we went over him. Like he just, there he was. And you st- I stepped on his like, leg. Um, and with about three meters to go before the finish line, I kicked past my own teammate. And I crossed <laughs> the finish line in eighth place by like a, uh, I don't know, four one hundredths of a second. And I took the last All-American spot in the perfect storm. And I didn't even run that fast to do it. But I uh, I squeaked out the last All-American spot as a freshman. And uh, that was um, probably one of the best days of my life. That day, going in with no expectations, um, I, I almost feel like I cheated a little bit because of the circumstances. But you got to show up on race day. And I was assured this by my coach. And you got to put in the work and it's not my fault. Somebody tripped and I, and I, and he wasn't in the race. Wasn't my fault. I outkicked my own teammate. Like I earned every bit of that. And so I, so I was an all American as a freshman in college division. Three. That's awesome. And it's a great yeah. reminder that like championship races are not about finding out who the best runner or best athlete is. It's finding out who is the best on that day at, at handling all the different situations. Yeah. Yeah, that was a uh, that was probably the most I'd hurt ever in my life up to that point. There's probably a good 800 meters of inside out. I hate my life. I cannot sustain this for another second type pain, and I held on to it for another two minutes, and it was probably the longest two minutes. I mean, I don't know if many of you listening have been in that state where you are bankrupt, you are drawing from nothing, and everything in your body is telling you like you can't continue. That was I I discovered a new level of like a pain threshold that day. In fact, that day changed me as an athlete because I realized what that what I thought were limiters physically and mentally were now completely shattered. Yeah. And yeah. to put it in perspective, you had run 356 that year, which mm-hmm. is let's call it 415 pace for a mile, roughly. Yeah, probably like, I think maybe somewhere around there, probably, yeah. It could be a second faster or so, but let's just say 415 for a nice round number. And you, yep. went, you went out hanging on at 201 for the first 800, which is 402 mile pace. Yeah, so, I'm tired on tired legs that had raced the day before. Yeah, so you had raced the day before and then gone out at 402 mile pace for the first half. Like, you are so far above what you <laughs> should be doing. There oh, yeah. is not 
a worse feeling. So people talk about what's the most painful race. And that's so subjective because what's pain? But in terms of what is the most intensely painful for the longest time, I think it's either the mile, the 3K or the 5K. Yeah, And the 5K is a different type of hurt as is the 3K because there's still some bit of like pacing and, and such involved. But the mile has the ability, I think, to hurt the most intensely for the longest period of time where over half your race can be already dead and dying. Yeah, I was a mile specialist, so that's all my focus was in track. So you also learn how to hurt better in the event that you're best at. You know what I'm saying? Point being, though, that race hurt more than any race I've ever done. Even still to this day, a mile time trial is going to put me in a new intense level of pain beyond. I I hate to say it, the intensity of a mile time trial or like a mile race is going to hurt more than any point in a Spartan race, even if it's a beast. Any point, like it's not going to last as long, but the, the sting is much sharper. Um, for sure. But, uh, yeah, so, so that was it freshman year. And then, um, and then my, my, I qualified again as a sophomore in the 15, I was third ranked going into this nationals. Um, uh, did you run that year? Around, uh, 354 and I got pneumonia two weeks out. So, oh. I did not make finals. I, in fact, I was the guy spit out the back in trials and, uh, it was a bust, unfortunately. So, so I had a disappointing sophomore year there. And then uh, Bracken, I know we don't, we haven't talked a lot about this, but then I never really had a chance to run again. My my college career was was cut short uh, after my sophomore year of college. So so I had some health issues that prevented me from kind of seeing my potential through. Did that start with pneumonia? Uh, no, 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 not pneumonia. That didn't start with pneumonia. Um, that started with I. Uh, I had moved into a, a house. I finally got off-campus housing. Like in Oshkosh, you had to live in the dorms your freshman and sophomore year. Um, my junior year, I finally got off-campus living, which is like the life. You get your real freedom. You get to go. And there's this old house called the Pink House. It was built in 1895 or something. It was just off-campus. Somebody painted it bright pink, and all the cross-country and track runners lived in it. Um, and it was cool to live in the Pink House. And so I got my ass to the Pink House, lived in the Pink House, and it was the most disgusting house you've ever lived in. And um, I moved into that house, uh, started my junior year and everything was fine. Everything was whatever. started cross country and, and there I started to notice they started having breathing issues and I couldn't really tell what it was. I'd start going asthmatic on some of my runs. Um, couldn't seem to get my breath. I was, had you had work. asthma symptoms or diagnosis prior to this? Yeah. Oh yeah. I had, I had, um, I had asthma symptoms. In fact, when I was young, I got pneumonia. Uh, like when I was like seven and I had a collapsed lung, I had to go to the hospital. And then ever since, and I was in the ER because the pneumonia is so bad anyways. So I always had breathing issues after that, but like they were just temperamental, like seasonal or allergies. Sometimes they'd act up. Um, and it all stemmed back from that pneumonia with the collapsed lung situation. But anyway, so my running started not going that well. I couldn't freaking figure it out. Um, as the season progressed, I had gotten worse and worse. Um, did not end up racing my, my fall that year with the team came back out for track, somewhat healthy. And then my best time, I was a 404 in the 1500. The year before I ran 354, 10 seconds quicker. I didn't make nationals. I couldn't, I couldn't figure out what was wrong. And I'm sure you had big expectations for the year. Huge. And everybody, you know, teammates are good supporters of mine, but they're like, man, is he a head case now? He was so good. What's going on? And all I knew is I just felt like shit. Anyways, as the year progressed, it got worse and worse and worse. And to the point, every time I went into the house, I'd have an asthma attack and I couldn't figure it out. I ended up in the ER every other week, like gasping for air. 
And I went from a high level runner to somebody who couldn't even like catch his breath, which was really bizarre. And so in a month time period, I lost almost 20 pounds. Uh, hair started falling out of my head, my arms, Jeez. all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, I was having major issues. And all I knew is when I was in that house, I didn't feel well. So I had to, I stopped running. I withdrew from athletics. I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on. And I just felt like shit. So I knew that house wasn't doing me any good. So I moved out to a different old shitty campus house, just knowing that that house definitely made things worse. But I didn't finish out my junior year. I didn't finish out my senior year. I uh, started doctoring to figure out what the heck was going on, um, which was really kind of a crazy time. You lost two years? Oh, yeah. I lost two. I mean, basically, in hindsight, two full years. I tried to make my junior year work, you know, trying to run and figure it out and being frustrated. And, you know, I was one of the more muscly guys. I was 155 pounds at 510, which is the, pretty much the biggest fast guy on the team. And now I'm down to 135 pounds. Uh, you should see pictures of me. It's kind of gross. Um, but anyways, so I'll just fast forward. So you guys get an idea what actually happened. So years later, we found this out, uh, this, this house that I lived in, I lived on one end of the house above the stairwell that went to the basement and the basement was an old girls college basement. It was full of standing water. It was that dark, dingy, you know, damp situation. Um, down in this basement was full of black mold all up and down the rafters, all on the walls, on the ceiling, through the floorboards, in the walls, all the way. And my bedroom was right above that. All the vent work came up into my room. And when you came into my bedroom, it was like you'd step on the floor and it'd feel gross, like slimy in the carpet. And everything was... And anyways, I just basically sucked in black mold spores for a whole year. And it slowly was killing me. And so... That's insane. Uh, it was awful, man. I'm telling you, it was the craziest shit happened. Like I would go to like talk and no words would come out of my mouth. I tried to, I would walk into a grocery store and forget how I got there. Like it affect my short-term memory, affect my breathing affected. Like I was so exhausted. I couldn't even go to practice, let alone get to class. So I was like, it turned everything upside down to the point where like I was sleeping 20 hours a day, going to the bathroom was exhausting, just getting up. I mean, I was 180, but we'd figured out that eventually that it was the house that made me sick. Like there's no other explanation other than like this situation. So, so anyway, so then my career is freaking gone. I barely hung on and I graduated school. I, I got done with school. I graduated still had to drop athletics, drop everything. Um, and I somehow managed to get into grad school and they offered me a running scholarship because I had eligibility. I had eligibility left because I didn't compete. So the cross country, I said, I'm going to try to get my school pay. I just tried to move forward with life. The only thing. And where was this? Where was grad school? Uh, UW Milwaukee. And so I'm going to doctors every week. I went to the Mayo Clinic a dozen times, flew to California, New York, Baltimore, Chicago, trying to get help to figure out what was wrong. Eventually we figured so this out. This was like, happened. this is intense. Oh, my whole life. Yeah. For two years, I didn't work. I didn't went home, live with mom. Um, my, everything was done, man. I was just hanging on for dear life. Yeah, that was 2004 through 2007, I would say. Uh, 2005 through 2007 was, I was just hanging on, man. Just trying to get through the day. Yeah, I would I would go for runs still. I remember like the one thing that made me feel normal though was running, like workouts. Like I would feel so shitty and so tired and so crappy, but I knew if I could go run, I, I knew like, I wasn't that sick. I would tell myself like, you're okay. Like you can still go run. And so I, I would. And so I ended up still, like I said, I was like, don't let this like run your life. Don't 
stop living. So I still applied to grad school. I still got in, accepted the scholarship my freshman or my for my first year of grad school. Um, and I went feeling like death warmed over. I went down to Milwaukee, wasn't sure I should. I uh, went on a D1 scholarship to run track, cross country and track. As a kid, I didn't tell anybody about it. No, my coach didn't know, teammates didn't know. I just wanted to go and try. And I got two weeks into practice and I broke down and I was like, I, what am I doing? Like, I, what am I kidding myself? Um, so I had to give up my scholarship. I hung on to school for as long as I could, ended up dropping out, going back, living at home uh, with my mom and just like trying to figure it out. So then we just doctored for like a year. We just doctored, went all over, tried to figure it out. Um, I ended up going back and re-enrolling in Milwaukee uh, a year later. But um, yeah, so that was it. So, so through this, I eventually started to get like a little bit better over time, started running a little more, um, ended up having to take my first full-time job because I fell off my mom's insurance. Because when you hit a certain age, you fall off your parents' insurance. So I was mm -hmm. forced to get a job so I could pay for my medical shit. So I got a job uh, as a uniform and textile rental service salesman for because they took me. Yeah. So uh, so that's where I actually ended up starting to work after school. Um, slowly started getting better. Slowly, not like day to day. Like you don't just move out of a house that makes you sick and get better overnight. You it takes it takes years because mold is most people aren't aware of, and I wasn't before either. It's like a neurological degenerate. So it. It really affects your nervous system. It works a lot like like napalm would in like the wars. It like messes up your system. So so once it starts messing like with you neurologically, it takes a while for that to recover. It can mess with your digestion, your brain function, your energy levels, cardiac. I mean, I was having cardiac dysrhythmia going into all sorts of crazy stuff. It was like one symptom after another. So I took years, but eventually when I started forcing myself to go back to work, I started forcing myself to work out again. And being like, okay, I'm gonna like try to get back into this, and I was feeling slowly better. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's this is bizarre. Yeah, I bet you didn't expect to go in this direction, did you, Bracken? Well, it's no, I didn't, and it's it's not the kind of thing you expect to hear from someone whose end game turned into being very successful athletically. Um, it sounds like a kiss of death. It was. There were moments. I'll tell you what, Bracken, and I don't share this with a lot of people, but since we're doing this, I bet I bet you there were. But there were a half dozen nights where I laid in bed and I wasn't sure if I was like going to see the next day. Like that's where I was at for years. Like I felt so sick that I couldn't and nobody could tell me what was wrong with me. Nobody could tell me, you know, I knew is I felt like hell and and I was going through every crazy symptom in the book. It was wild. Um, so but the, the point is, is then I started going down like naturopathic healing routes while seeing traditional medicine doctors. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but I have a degree in naturopathic medicine. I ended up trying to learn how to get myself better. So I went, uh, I took a degree in naturopathic medicine, learning about homeopathics, herbology, holistic nutrition, supplementation. Uh, so I did that three years while I was sick from home, trying to learn that stuff. Um, and through a combo of like just getting out of that house, doing some health things along the way, and then just deciding like, fuck you, I'm going to move forward with life. I slowly started getting like, slowly got better. I don't know if I'm... Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Well, not to shortcut the process, but start to finish, like mm -hmm. first symptoms to I'm I'm me again. What was the yep. scale of that? I'll never be the same. Oh, never. Yeah. I'm never going to be the same since before that happened. Um, that's why sometimes I'll have up and down performances. Like sometimes even today you'll see, you'll see like a, like I'll have a rough race once in a while. 
Like sometimes my body just. This like, was the longest buildup to a race excuse I've ever heard. This was <laughs> masterful. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's totally my intention. I, I, I led you right into that one. But like, I, like my breathing issues for one. Like sometimes it's just I have a day and like it's just like, like there's got to be some scar tissue in my freaking alveola and my lungs from this process. That like some days when I'm aggravated, it just it cuts me off. For example, but I would say I went from I lived I moved into that house in 2003. I moved out in 2004. Um, I would say from then until I'm going to say 2008 or nine, I would say was totally sick phase where I didn't, I didn't go out. I didn't socialize. I didn't do a whole lot. Um, I would say then I started to really live life in 2008, 2009. I said, I just got to ignore it and I got to try to get back to being a person. So that's when I started to like sort of train again. I started to really, and through that time, but I don't want to like mislead you. I was still running. I was still doing a little bit of weightlifting, just trying to like go through the motions, even though I didn't feel well at like working out was the one thing that made me feel normal. Um, and then slowly, but surely I started to feel a little better, a little better. And I think I entered my first race in 2010. You lost the better part of a decade. Uh, I lost a good five years. Yeah. I never got to see out my college career, which was the disappointing thing. That's why this Spartan race thing is like my second lease at being a, an athlete, which I I always felt like I was shorted back in the day. I never found or saw my potential because it, the rug was swept out from under me. And now I, it's like, it's like my second coming. And so I'm going to bleed this thing to death. Let me tell you, because it's, it's, it's given me new purpose and focus. So, so anyways, I ran my first actually race. I did, I think my first race back, in fact, my sister did a warrior dash in 2010 and she said, Hey, there's this warrior dash. And I'm telling you, I'm starting to feel a little better guys. Like I don't feel great. Some days are better than others. Um, but like, I'm getting back to life. I'm like dating again. I'm, I have a job. I'm like doing it like from the outside, I'm looking like a normal person again. But, uh, anyways, yes, I did a, a warrior dash, uh, my first race in 2010 with my sister. She just said, come down and do it again. I was running now I'm running like somewhat regularly. I'm getting back into training with no purpose. And I got crushed. It was at a ski hill. Uh, and I got smoked. It was awful. The popsicles weren't a deal. It's a warrior dash. You give me, you kidding me, but I got smoked. So that was my first race back 2010. So I, I think I probably had gone five years without racing. Um, and then it sort of began. Then I was like, you know what? I want to get back in. And then it sort of started, I would say. Wow. Um, yeah. That couldn't be more different than my college to Spartan transition. <laughs> I competed yeah. as a fifth year senior and ran my first obstacle race nine less than um less than six months later. Yeah, I suppose, huh? Man, we had different routes to get here. Yeah, we did. I think we all have different routes to get here though. You know, I don't think there's one right way to do it. I um and well, I yours was the know, wrong way. That's for sure. Yeah. You know what though? I'll tell you what, Bragan. I through all that stuff, um, I think the one thing that I can take from that for sure is I have such like a, a perspective on things now that like when, when everything's going your direction, like it's hard to see more than what's in front of your face. Like you're just there. Like I, you know, I was on top of the world. Everything was going well. I had nothing really holding me back. I'd never gone through like a real trial in my life. Like I was one of the lucky ones. And when you go through something like that and you question like, hey, am I going to like live? Am I going to see tomorrow? I, you lose all your friends, your athletic passion. And then you finally get some of it back. Like the appreciation I have now, there's no fucking way I would have this appreciation if it wasn't for going through what I have. And I know it's easy for me to say now that I'm removed from it. And it is easy for me to say now that I'm removed from it because in the thick of it, it sucked. But um, I don't know if I would change it. I don't know. I don't know if I would change it, man. I really don't. Well, what is it about 
humans that we don't appreciate things until they're gone. And that sounds dramatic, but like you don't every day like think, oh man, my knees are so responsive. And then you tear a meniscus and they're not responsive. And you're like, wow, I cannot wait until I have responsive knees. You don't every day think, I don't. Oh, my lungs are just just so on point today until you don't have lungs anymore. You know, like we mm -hmm. we truly don't we have an embarrassment of riches with how well our bodies work. Yeah. And you don't get the fact that you're rich until you go broke. It's, I have so many clients that I have to like, it's like splitting hairs to get them to go out and train or do their workouts for the day. Either my personal training clients in the gym or sometimes athletes I coach, and then they'll have an injury pop up. And suddenly like, I was like begging them to do their workout. And now that they're injured and they can't, they're begging to do their workouts. It's the same perspective, just in a more elaborate sense. Yeah, you're exactly right. You're so exactly there, right. There, there's some truth to that, that sometimes the best thing for you is that setback. Now, I would say that you were, you had an embarrassment of riches with your setback. Like you, you didn't need that much. <laughs> no, I'm sure you could appreciate life without that, but you've seen a lower point than a lot of us will see. Yeah, it was some dark years, man. They were, it was dark years. It was my mom quit her job basically to cart me around. She would go into doctor's offices and cry and beg for help. And I would sit there helpless. I mean, we traveled all over the country. Yep, for years. Yeah, my mom basically went bankrupt because we had to spend money on medical bills. Had each I don't story know, keeps coming back to her. She's just the rock it, of the family. Oh, she was such a. I mean, she. My dad was helpful then too, but my mom was like, you know, and she told me like once she's like, you don't know how much you care about something until you have a sick kid. You know what I mean? Till your kid like till something that you've brought up like isn't is like isn't doing well. So she, yeah, she basically. I remember midnight drives to the Mayo Clinic. We'd leave at two a.m. and and drive to get weekend testing done. I would, uh, and she would, she'd be like, we have to go. And she'd go and she'd just sit there and just beg doctors to listen. And I knew they'd say, you're the healthiest sick kid we've ever seen. They'd say, all your stats are normal. I went through every, I mean, I went to a psychiatrist. I went through a, a full day psychological evaluation at the Mayo Clinic to make sure it wasn't in my head. I went through uh, the ringer cardiologists, um, infectious disease doctors, internists, GI specialists, um, everybody you could think of in multiple places. Yeah. And she was just with me along that whole thing. So she spent all her whole, all her money on me. We had to, she created a fundraiser for me at her work and we, we got some help that way. And I mean, it was a whole mess of stuff, but, um, but yeah, we don't need to dwell on that any more than just the point being is that like, it was, uh, it was an interesting time in life and, and it, you, you don't, I think the only reason I'm probably still here is because I chose to keep pushing forward. Like I'd never, like the one thing was like, you have to like keep trying to live. And then eventually you, you can, you snapped out. I snapped, snapped had, out of it. So to speak. Had it been tempting not to it at any point? Oh yeah. To just time. like throw it in? All the time. But I recognized I felt better. Like uh, fitness like, like was the one thing that made me feel normal, as I mentioned. So I think that's what kept me on the hook. Um, so yeah. And so after this time and not to just 180 this conversation, but like I was suddenly starting to feel a little bit better around 2008, 2009 then I got a call about this freaking bachelor to do the bachelor thing. How, how did, how, how did that happen? I know it's like a, it's a little bit of a tangent, but uh, a buddy of mine, um, Anthony and his wife had watched the bachelor bachelorette. I don't watch, I didn't watch those shows uh, at the time. And it says, if you or somebody, you know, would like to date our next bachelorette, you know, submit an application. Well, they submit an application for me without me knowing. So <laughs> I got a call in 2009. Again, I'm like, what was just, their rationale? I mean, they, 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 it's a good buddy of mine. They knew I was starting to get back into fitness. So I was like, 
and he knew I was sick for a while. I knew I was starting to feel like I just maybe something maybe he thought I needed it. I don't know. You know what I mean? I'm not sure. Um, we're good buddies. And again, I'm starting to like live again. I'm starting to, you know, have do normal things and I'm starting to just yeah. be like a normal person. Um, and so anyways, I got a call. I was like, Hey, this is Lane from the bachelor on ABC. And I was like, who, who, who is this again? Anyways. And so I went through the casting process and, um, did not tell them any of my illness story in the casting process. I just, I did wanted to put that in, in the, you know, I wanted to just put that behind me. Uh, and they picked me. So I was one of the 25 losers that went out to LA to date one woman all of a sudden. So I had like a whirlwind a uh, couple of years because of that too. Uh, let's not brush over that. <laughs> you, you weren't just on the show. You were, you were the one on the show. No, I was one of the 25 guys that was going for one. Yeah, girl. but suddenly there weren't 25 anymore and you kept sticking around. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why I kept sticking around. But yeah, we. so on The Bachelorette, uh, anyways, they cast me. Um, my job at the time, I was, you know, selling shirts and pants. I was a uniform textile rental service guy. Uh, so I was knocking on doors, uh, selling this uniform and textile rental service to, uh, to people getting doors slammed in my face, all that. But the one thing is that I was good at it. And so I could, I could sell somebody water when they already had a lake in front of them. You know, I was just like one of those guys. And so they, the company said, Hey, go ahead. You have your job. We're going to pay you while you still go. We just want you to come back and sell shirts and pants for us again. <laughs> so I was like, all right. So they kept paying me and they let me go off to do my thing. They were a very good employer. And so, um, yeah, so I, uh, went to the show and it was craziest experience in my life, dude. I never experienced anything like that ever. And I ended up getting dumped after hometown dates. So I brought her home to meet my family. There were four of us left, brought her to Green Bay, Wisconsin. Still have what they call the second most creepy uh, hometown date of all time. Because <laughs> uh, my dad is a taxidermist. Now, out uh, of respect to you, I've never yeah. watched your season. Just like I never finished my brother's mm -hmm. season of the selection. I have a hard time watching people I care about in compromising or emotional situations. So I just haven't uh, ever watched it. I think if you watch it, you're just going to say, oh, that's Kirk. Like, there's Kirk. Okay. Like, being Kirk. Yeah, I don't think you're going to think anything of it. Uh, you're going to have to watch me make out on TV, which is going to be awkward for you. But, I mean, you know. Only just go get jealous. <laughs> just the jealousy factor. <laughs> so, yeah, so I did that. Got dumped after the hometown dates when there were four of us left, um, which was just an eye-opening experience. And that experience, you know, we went, started in LA, then we went to New York, then I went to Reykjavik, Iceland, Istanbul, Turkey, Lisbon, Portugal, then brought her back to meet my family. Um, all of this is being filmed on national TV. Did um, it ever get normal with the constant buzz of cameras around you every second? You know, I think what, you know, the first couple of days, it, it seemed like the people who could just ignore the cameras lasted. That was part of it, like lasted longer. And I'm going to shoot you straight, man. Alcohol helped. Like, I think alcohol got me through the first week there. I don't think there was a moment in which I didn't have a blood alcohol content of legally drunk that first week while I was out with her because it was like such an intense experience. When I walked out of that limo, I remember that first night, <clears throat> it's this big lead up process and I don't even need to get into it. But there were five of us in the limo and I was the last limo to say hello to this bachelorette. So um, 25 guys, 24 guys have already met her, basically. I was like one of the last. And I was so nervous that, and they have vodka Red Bulls in the limo and there's ever, and people are taking shots and they want you to get all buzzed up so you're not lame, you know? And I remember having to pee really bad too. I remember being like, they sucked me in this limo with no bathroom and I had to meet this girl and I was so nervous that I steamed up the whole side of the window of the limo. So I couldn't even see her out of my window because I was just like perspirating, <laughs> like heavy breathing. So I remember like squeegeeing off the window with my hand 
to just see her. And here's this like beautiful blonde girl. And, and I look around and there's a guy with a hose hosing off the driveway to make it wet and glisten. And there's probably a hundred people in a half circle and two dozen cameras. There's people in trees with like tree hats on with cameras. There's, I mean, you watch people get out of this limo and it looks like this intimate moment where it's just you and her and you don't see the hundred people and the 25 cameras and everything. It was probably the most nervous I've ever been in my life, knowing that 10 to 20 million people are going to see you be an idiot on TV. And this is the kid who would turn deep red giving a speech in high school. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't even remember. I remember I pretty much blacked out because of the intensity of the situation. And then suddenly I was done talking to her and went into the limo and I don't even remember what I said till I watched it, to be honest with you. Um, but yes, anyways, that experience as a whole, we don't need to dive into too deep there, I think, as far as the intricacies. But um, I did a couple of shows after that. I did something called Bachelor Pad, which they invited me back for a year later. And then a show, Bachelor in Paradise in 2015, all because of one stupid friend with one stupid nomination that I took, said yes to a, a situation. Did you ever get to read his, his uh, submitted application for you? They read it to me only once. Uh, when they gave me that initial phone call and it was two, he's a writer, he's a journalist. Okay. He, he's, uh, he does a lot of music reviews and cons anyways. So he's very well written. He's so it was the most perfect three sentences. It was the shortest little blip and it was a picture of me shirtless on the beach, uh, you know, looking fit in his eyes. And it just, it, I don't remember. It just was like a very nice brief summary of like, I think he just made shit up about like a desirable human. Like he just knew what they probably wanted to hear and wrote it. And it was, you know, it was half truths, but it was short. Yeah. The casting process in itself though is arduous. It was a nine month casting process. I flew out, you see psychologists, you see lawyers, you go through a in-person like roll through anyways. It's a, they get tens of thousands of applicants and then they narrow it down to 25. So it's kind of actually a long process, but um Anyways, yeah, so then I had that distraction after I was starting to get healthy. So then that was all whirlwind stuff. But I stepped, kept working out through all of that. So the Black Death period, it took you five years to get normal. How long did it take from the moment you stepped like into the first meeting there to the moment your life got back to some semblance of normalcy? Because you were like paid to come to clubs, mobbed up. Mike Ferguson has a story that he did, he realized who you were like in the world when he went to Summerfest with you for the first time and you guys couldn't walk places because you were was, mobbed and surrounded. Like when did life get normal again? Uh, yeah, I'll tell you what, I couldn't go anywhere. I remember the first time after the first episode it aired and I was living in Madison, Wisconsin, and I went out to a bar um, with buddies. So the episode aired on a Monday and I only had maybe two minutes of airtime in that first episode. I went out to the bar and I was like an A-list celebrity. It was like hundreds of people. I bet you I took 300 pictures that night. I'd be like, I have to go to the bathroom. So we're out drinking. And it would take me an hour to get to the bathroom and back because I was stopped every two seconds. Um, I couldn't go to the grocery store without getting recognized. I couldn't do anything to the point where um, at one point, at one event, I got tackled by a mob of Canadian women and Edmonton, Canada. It's the most polite uh, tackling where, you'd ever had. <laughs> yeah, I was like, it was very sexual tackling. Um, it was, we had bodyguards. Oh, I used to fly around and go. One weekend would be Chicago and I'd go do a two night nightclub stint. They'd pay me basically to show up at these clubs and I would be like, they, people would pay a cover to get in and I would be the party facilitator and people would stand in line to take pictures with me and hang out. And, and so I did that for months afterwards. I've been everywhere. All Were over you comfortable with that role? 
I became comfortable with that role. You don't, you know, you just adapt, man. Like I, having eyes on me like that was so bizarre. Like, sure. I mean, just, I'll just go unfiltered. Like I did okay with meeting women at the time and dating and, and, and everything. But I was like a normal guy that got rejected, like at times, like everybody else and things. And then suddenly like people are throwing themselves at you and suddenly you feel special and people are giving you this attention. And it's usually for the wrong reason anyways. And it was like a weird it was a weird time. I, I got had a lot of distractions because of that lifestyle. I saw another side of the world. Like you end up in a club at 4 a.m. where people are doing drugs that you don't want to be seen doing. Like I've had some weird things checked off my list because of this experience, like for sure. And that I knew better than, of course, um, nothing I was interested in. But um, it was you You just like adjust. I don't know. You just like adapt. You was just, that a seductive like, lifestyle for you or one that you knew like? I'm okay when things stop being like this. It was seductive for about six months. Yeah. yeah. Until I woke up. So I was trying to travel on the weekends to do these paid events, which paid good money. It was fun. I got to see another friend or two from the show because I made friends through this. So we'd travel to someplace, do this event, have a blast. And then I'd come home and have to train clients at 6 a.m. on Monday morning. Because I started, I'd started my personal training business in there too, which is a whole other story. But um, so it was seductive until I was like, I'm miserable. What am I doing? And all of it was meaningless. Going to random clubs and, you know, meeting women and drinking too much and doing all that and waking up in different places every weekend. I was like, I just want to go home and be my normal self again. It wore out really fast. Did they I, let you do that as quickly as you were ready to do that? I could have done that whenever I wanted to. I'm but talking about like the, the publicity, the, the ability to be normal again. Did that take a while until you were allowed to? Uh, yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I, I knew if I chose to go do something social, I was single after that show. Cause obviously I get dumped on national TV and everybody feels bad for the guy that got dumped, you know? Um, so if I went out to like socialize, if I went out to the bars, if I went out somewhere, like it was going to be the same thing, a mob of people around me trying to talk to me, buying me drinks, taking photos, you know, asking for after parties, like all those things, like that was the life I actually lived. Uh, and so if I didn't want to deal with it, I just didn't have to go out. Like I just had to not go out and I slowed down. I don't go out at all anymore, but there was a, you know, it's, it's easy to get caught up in that when you didn't get that much attention as a man, like from women beforehand. And then suddenly like you're getting a bunch of it like that and having fun times with your buddies. Like, and now men remember I had to hold back for years cause I wasn't feeling well. Suddenly I'm like, Oh my God, I'm fucking alive. Like I'm living my life. Like it felt good. So I did that for, I did that for six months. About six months stint after the bachelorette, maybe about a six month stint after bachelor pad. And then I was pretty, I was pretty burnt out. Now I just don't want attention on me. I want to live my life in the shadows as much as I can and just like be simple. I want like, it made me want to live the simple life. Like, and that's what I'm doing now. And that's what I enjoy. I would say. You swung as far left and as far right is almost as attainable by, uh, by a person in this world. Yeah. I remember this is going to sound kind of bizarre, but I remember when I was really sick, I was living with my mom. I dropped out of grad school and I couldn't sleep at night sometimes because I was feeling shit. And I would go drive to downtown Green Bay at like 1 a.m. And I would just watch the kids go in and out of the bars because I wanted to like be social, but I didn't feel good enough to be social. I did this a lot, which is really creepy and weird in hindsight, but that's where I was at. And then <clears throat> when this all came full circle, because I was just so withdrawn, I couldn't go socialize. And then after the bachelor experience and being out in like, public and having that sort of attention i was like i was i mean i was sick at the time and looking out at people having fun is what i thought at the bars when i was sick 
And then after I'd worn all that out six months into it, I was like, eh, looking at those kids longing to go to the bars and have fun, like is kind of overrated after I had then finally got it out of my system. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It was like, it all came back around, so to speak. But um, yeah, so that, so that whole bachelor stint was, uh, it was actually a really good way, man. I'll tell you what, the biggest thing the bachelor did for me, it's, it taught me to like, just move on with life. I quit being the sick kid, start living and having experiences. And it almost like shook me out of it. Like, Hey, you're alive. You're moving forward with life. You're having new experiences. Like it was the, honestly, it was like a godsend. It was like, like a reward have, for your years of dragging yourself through the ringer. Yeah. And it, it was forced, it forced me to, it forced me to live again. Like it forced me to just be like, yep, you're back. Like go, that's in the past. Now you're just looking for, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. That's, it's crazy. It's, I mean, it's, there are things you've gone through that people just don't. And mm-hmm. they, it was like they were complementing pieces to, to your puzzle that one without the other doesn't, you can't balance that equation. Like your, your equation was almost balanced back to, all right, now I know what I want. I now have the skills socially and financially to do it. And now yeah. I can move forward. And most people, not, I shouldn't say most, many people you see who get this taste of whatever that, you know, quote unquote, better life is, fail to capitalize on it. They either become addicted to that pull of it and their entire life is now spent seeking that again and trying to become irrelevant again or trying to get the attention again, or they move on, but they haven't used it as the springboard towards what's next. And you seem to have craved normalcy afterwards, but also found a way to take your notoriety and your you know small windfall from it and channel it into long-term stability and success. Like you started personal training business off of that and no. you... Rather than seeking the TMZ route, you used your name to to become a, a success, and that's a that has to stem back to all those years back with with your upbringing to be able to capitalize on that moment. Yeah, it's sad actually. A lot of a lot of my buddies that I did those shows with are still. I mean, every conversation it has to come up. You know, like The Bachelor has to be snuck into everything, and it's still like the framework of who they are. And you know, it was six weeks, seven weeks of my life in 2010. You know, that doesn't, that's not worth talking about every day of your life. Like a lot of these people are still stuck in that. Like that's going to be the best thing they've ever done with their life. And it's so sad because these people think it's something And it. Yes, it was a blessing and a life experience for me, but they're still stuck there. It's bizarre. I mean, half the people that I know are still stuck there and then half have chosen to move on and, and live like a normal life. Um, so it's, it's very, it's very true. Um, I, I actually, with that, you know, shirts and pants job, that was very glorious that I had. I, uh, my CEO of the company I had worked for at the time saw me. They heard, oh, a kid that's working for me is on The Bachelorette. And so the CEO, we're a billion dollar company. We had like 12,000 employees. CEO decided to start watching The Bachelorette. And, uh, he, he called me up after the show and he said, Kirk, he said, you don't know a lot about the company. You haven't been here very long, but I like you. He goes, <laughs> he goes, can... I know he's like, I know you're getting sick of this company or your role. He said, can I fly you out? Can I fly out and talk to you and, uh, and see if you're interested in a new position with the company? And so he flew out. He knew I was getting antsy to leave that job. I basically had come back from this bachelor experience. And then I was cold calling auto garages and people were telling me to fuck off. Like I was like, I had this life, like I had this crazy life around the world. And now I'm getting door slammed in my face again, being this outside salesman. Anyways, he promoted me to uh, like a, basically like a regional manager for our company in Minnesota. So that moved me to Minneapolis. Is this when you bought the Madone? This is when I bought the Trek Madone we had talked about. Yes. I thought I was big time, big time. Yeah. So I got this new salary and 
moved here. The Bachelorette was airing, and I started the job. And I'll tell you what, Bracken, shirts and pants didn't seem so damn important after you do the Bachelorette and see the world. They just didn't seem to matter anymore. So so I, uh, I started um, – I had to go on this live talk show on ABC here uh, called Twin Cities Live. They wanted me to just talk about the experience. And so I went on their live talk show and they wanted to talk about The Bachelor. And they said, what are you doing now? What made you move to the cities? And I was three weeks into that job. I moved all the way to Minneapolis for it. And I had quit on that Friday. I called in and said, I can't do it. I'm so sorry. Thank you for everything. I'm out. So the next day I had to go on this live talk show and they said, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And I said, I have a personal training business uh, <laughs> and you can reach me at uh, kirk.dewint at gmail.com. I ran home, created the email address. And I, <laughs> you didn't have the email address. <laughs> I, I had nothing. I made it up on the spot and I ran home and I created the email address and I had five, five inquiries in my inbox by the next day. Uh, that next week I started sneaking people into my apartment complex. I fobbed them in because it was like a high-end apartment complex. I started, I made a website and a caribou coffee by myself over the weekend with a buddy who knew some things about that. And thus it began. And so I started sneaking people into my small studio apartment complex gym. Uh, And then about six months later, management came to me and said, are you running a small business out of our apartment? And I said, yep. And they said, you got to get the fuck out. And so I got kicked out of my apartment complex and I, was, <laughs> and I was forced to grow that way. So I found a gym to partner with and then I moved on and that's where that all started. Had that, all was that a pre-planned statement you made on that morning show? I had thought about after I quit my job, I had thought about um, what I want to do with my life. I was like, I know I can use this notoriety to do something that I actually care about. And fitness was becoming very important to me again. I've been practicing it my whole life. Um, and so I, uh, I had an idea. That was my intent was to, was to try to do some sort of training. I always got it. I was always a leader that way. I knew it, it felt right. Um, and w- while I was in grad school, sick, I was trying to personal train part-time to make some money. And so I had done all that. I'd been in school for it. Um, so I had an idea. And then when they, I knew that, I figured they were going to ask me. So I didn't know how to put it. And it just kind of came out the way it did. How different honest. would things be right now had you not blurted that out? I'd still be doing what I'm doing. Yeah. I just don't know if it would have gotten the jump start it had. Gotcha. Um, yeah. So, so that's where that spawned, and and it was a hustle. I I had to get some side jobs as I was building that business. Uh, for the first two years, I started teaching at Orange Theory Fitness to make ends meet. Um, I was doing some other work, trying to figure it out, and then I got eventually busy enough to make a living doing it. And then it sort of has grown over the last ten years into what it what it has, but it's still, you know, still pretty simple setup, but yeah, it began from that, uh, that move to Minneapolis and that one, that live talk show. Yeah. That's bizarre. Did, have, have you ever talked to them? Like, I assume you had more contact with that studio or those people afterwards. Did you, did you ever, uh, let them know, like that was totally off the cuff or, uh, you know, I co-hosted that show then a couple of times. I was oh, the actual cool. host. Yeah. I was the co-host on that show a couple of times. I was a guest for them another dozen times. Um, I don't know if I actually ever had that conversation with them. You just spoke it into of, existence. And because of that, then I went on and I was, God, there's so many things we could touch on. I was the host of the CW network here in town for two years. I was Fox nine's fitness expert, right? In morning fitness segments here in town for a while. Um, I, it led me into a lot of things. It all was like a lead up into certain things. But the great thing about that Bracken is like, I took my lumps early. I 
you know, I was in the mud for a long time with figuring out what the hell I was doing, but um, ultimately all led me to where I'm at now. Like, and I think something we talked about with you on your podcast is when we interviewed you last week is like, people look at lives. Like you look at successful athletes in our sport, like a, let's say like an Atkins or a Alban or a Hobie, or it doesn't even matter. And everybody thinks that it just happens for them. Everybody thinks that they just like, they're just an amazing athlete and everything. Like nobody, everybody sees people's fucking highlight reels on Instagram. They don't see what's really going on. And the perspective is, is I had to go through all that to get where I am today. And every stepping stone led to the other. And I met it all halfway with hard work. And here we are just like, here you are. Like you got to take your lumps. You got to, you got to still like earn your place. And when the sign tells you to go one direction, sometimes you listen to it, you know? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how else you take it. That's it. You, you make the move when it's supposed to, and you just decide you're not going to stop. <laughs> That's really it. Like success sometimes is just being stubborn that all signs point to I'm done, but we're going to try for another day. Yeah. You just got to stay, you just got to stay hungry. And that's exactly what it was at one point in time, Brecken. It was like, I can't worry about what I'm doing next week or next month. Like I just have to get through today. Like that's how, and I think it framed my mind a little differently. It's actually made me very productive because most people like, for example, with my clients who are trying to lose weight, they get, they get lost in the process, like overwhelmed. Like I have to lose a hundred pounds. It's so daunting. How the hell am I going to do that? Like, and they get overwhelmed and then they just give up where really they need to be thinking about what can I do today? What can I do right now? What can I, what do I eat for lunch? What do I eat for dinner? When do I schedule my workout? And it's just a sum of all parts that leads you to like a big end result. And my, my process may sure it looks different than other people's like what I've had to go through, but, and I'm sure in 10 years, I'll look back on today and this will have led me to the next thing too. But um, you're, it's exactly right. You just got to keep moving forward and you got to look at, they take things one day at a time. So the bachelorette and all of this really just prepped you for Spark Race. Just <laughs> like, prepped you for the running public. That's it. It was the cum. The, this podcast is the and Spartan Race with the culmination of all your years of grinding. <laughs> it is the epitome of my career. Yeah. But like seriously, you got to OCR then with a unique skill set. You had college fifteen hundred meter speed with some expanding range you had got into strength and conditioning afterwards you had those two components added to a naturally athletic childhood and skill set and you found spartan race yes i did what yes i did did it speak to you immediately did you know like the way most of us knew like you did one and you thought oh this this right here might be my venue uh the ironic thing about the bachelor stuff just to tie this together is because I knew I was going on TV, I started hitting the weights hard and I put on a lot of power and a lot of strength because I knew I had to go on TV shirtless, to be honest. I mean, at my lowest, I was 135 pounds when I was in the depths of being sick. And I went on the bachelor at 175 pounds, you know, I gained 40 pounds and it was all lean weight. Um, but that strength kind of, then I started, um, that was all because so I could look good on TV, to be honest with you. Um, I mean, it is what it is. And then, and then I started to miss running and put it all together. But I, you know, I saw, I was at home, the Spartan thing for me began, I was doing some five K's. I started to get interested. I was racing five K's training, doing interval work every week. This was after the bachelor time frame. I was running mid 16s, low 16s. Uh, I think I ran 16, 11, like three or three freaking five K's in a row. I'd pick like one a month and just go do it. Yeah. Um, running maybe 20, 30 miles a week. Anyways, I was at home over Christmas in 2015 and they were airing the Spartan race world champs on NBC. 
And I was really starting to like running. I was really starting to feel like, hey, maybe I want to like really give this another go. And I saw Robert Killian kick that bell in his yellow like triathlon shirt mm-hmm. at Spartan Race World Champs. And I remember ignoring my family basically for that whole hour. It was on in the background while our family had our gathering for Christmas. I think it was Christmas Eve maybe. It aired anyways, and I was just enthralled, and I was uh, I never knew that sport existed. So that was actually the catalyst for me is watching. I wanted that moment that Robert Killian had. I remember seeing them carry the buckets and the strength stuff and thinking that, wow, I've been training for this. You know, you hear this a lot from athletes. Like, I've been training for this and didn't even know it. And right. I had that exact cliche moment. So that's where so that's where I was exposed to Spartan for the first time was coincidentally. If NBC went to Ben on that day on at Christmas in the background, I don't, I don't know if I would have run my first race. It was that simple. That's crazy. Those little little moments that did or didn't happen determine our path sometimes. Yeah. So I signed up. Uh, I signed up for my first race in Chicago that year, uh, 2016. Um, I think it was in June, mm-hmm. 2016. I ran my first race. Started training, building up from for for that. Uh, and then you know the rest is history. I got DQ'd from that race. Yes, you did. Uh, yeah, you yeah. made fun of me for uh, for failing my over under through. You you skipped the the Atlas Stone. Yeah, I just thought the Atlas carry was a stupid obstacle. I just blew right by that thing. I suppose if you've never been in a race before and you were leading, right? No, or no, you were no. behind and couldn't see the leader. I was Robert Killian was in that race. Robert Brian Gwiski, oh, that's and right. Mike, Ferg- Mike Ferguson. Um, in fact, I ran next to Robert Killian for like a mile and a half, and I he was the reason I was there to start with because I'd seen him on TV. It was really surreal experience. Um, but no, we were in the swamps of Chicago. If any of you run the Chicago venue, it's really thick back in there at times. And I popped out where the Atlas stone was in the middle of the swamp. There's like a dry land and Mike Ferguson had just got done and started running. So all I saw was Mike Ferguson running into the swamp. I didn't see him do the Atlas carrier, the burpees. I just had seen him right after he completed it. Right. And so I just saw Mike Ferguson in front of me running and I thought, Oh shit, I made up some time on him in the swamp and just kept my eyes on him. No volunteers stopped me whatever. So I ended up getting DQ'd, which sucked. Yeah. I remember being devastated driving all the way down to Chicago for a race uh, and getting DQ'd. But yeah, that was my first experience. So I was at that race and I, I saw the, you I, were saw at the that race? I was, yeah, I was at that race. Huh? I saw the potential there. And, um, Oh yeah. And, Cause you were coaching those guys. You were coaching Mike right? and Garrett toll and, and some other, and this guys. is when I had had my first stint of injury and whatnot. And so I wasn't racing, but, uh, did that. Um, and I actually stood on the podium that day as Robert Killian. He oh, that's a- right. I have, a, I have a photo of Mike Ferguson up there and you were Robert. Yeah. Yep. So I saw what was to come and, and I would say that your career has been very successful without ever hitting your ceiling. I feel like you've not yet had your races where you did the things that you're still going to do. Much as you talked about, you think like, I'm going to get back to what I was and I'm going to be on the podium. I feel like you're going to get to what you still are going to be. And I, I, I don't know how you feel about that, but I don't know if that's an insult or, or not. I don't intend it to be. I just feel like you have still some things in the sport that um, like you haven't scratched that that your final level of performance in the sport. You've had a couple top five finishes in U.S. National Series races. He just took 11th at the world championships at altitude mm-hmm. with a breathing problem. Like you've done some very good things, but I don't know if you would claim that you have your signature moment yet. And I believe that that, that that's plural. There are moments mm-hmm. still to come that are your signature moments. Uh, you know, 
I I agree with you 100%. And I think the the reason I I agree with you 100% is because I'm still hungry. I I feel like I had some pinnacle moments back in college before I had not, you know, gotten sick and and because I I had some years taken away from me, I like super super motivated right now to do well. And you know, the longest streak I'd put together back in staying injury free was the 2018 U.S. National Series, and I was fourth in Seattle, sixth in Big Bear, fifth in Chicago, um, and then I got injured and didn't get to run West Virginia or Tahoe that year. Um, I was on the cusp of podiums. I've taken two fourths in National Series races. I haven't podiumed yet, and I know my performances can be up and down some days, um, and, and that's, I think, the card I'm drawn. It's It's just sometimes my body can be a little funky, but what I do know is then after that season, I got hurt. And I've now strung together some training and, and, and this season honestly would be the season I, I feel confident and poised to go out and really hammer. I'm hoping that, hoping that we see it, but I'm, I'm confident I can run with anybody in this sport, at least on the flats, not at elevation. I think a lot of people don't believe that. And that actually excites me even more. I, I, I just need, I need a couple more chances. I've gotten a lot smarter dealing with my current injuries. I have a great rehab program going to keep myself injury free. I'm now realizing that holding myself back and training a little bit is actually the winning formula instead of trying to be a hero and do what I think. I don't need to do 100% of my capacity. I need to stick at 70% of it all the time. And if I do that, the pieces are going to fall right into place. And so I just, uh, I need the chance to go race, Bracken. And I yeah, need to, yeah, that's where I'm at right now. And, yep. and, and you're going to get that chance. You have a, you have years left before you age out. You know, you have, you have the ability to string more training together. You know, this could become your longest uninterrupted training block that you've ever had in your adult life. You know, that's true. These pieces, I see aligning. I see that if Abu Dhabi happens, that you're among the favorites. I think that these kind of things are on the, on the horizon. But I, I guess I, I had questions coming into this about, are you still hungry or do you still have excitement for it? But the Black Plague story kind of answered all these questions for me as to why you're still feeling so excited and confident and motivated. You, you, you've had a little bit of a, a bigger issue pop up than stress fractures or quarantine. And that really yeah. frames, it frames, I think in all of our minds now, why a little bit more, why you tick the way you tick. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you what injuries as frustrating as they are, don't seem like a big deal compared to uh, real health struggles. You know what I'm saying? So I'm, I'm fine taking lumps now when I have to, because like, that's just a small speed bump and I've experienced much worse. And so I think you're right. It's, it's, I, it is, I have my frustrating moments because I know it doesn't matter what anybody else thinks. You know, I think I get looked over, uh, constantly because I haven't earned the right not to. And, and I've been on the precipice, but I've never stood on a, a, a national series podium and I've never done it more than once, obviously, which is when you really start getting noticed for, for your efforts. So um, I don't think I can quit Bracken until that happens. I don't unless, think you there's some other, unless there's some other glaring sign that tells me to do so. So that is that is my full intention right now. And yeah, I'm 36. I'll be 37 in two weeks. But uh, if you look at other athletes, history shows that it's not too late. So, I'll so say, that's what's going to happen. I will say this, and this is kind of based off that kind of based off all of this. I've, I've had a, a decent amount of people. Um, I shouldn't say there's droves of them. We, we get a ton of support for our coaching and for our podcast from our listeners, but I've had a decent amount of people like without trying to be offensive, say things like, you know what? 
you guys are not the best in the world at what you do, but you're very informative and authoritative when you talk about it. Like, do I take this with a grain of salt because you're not a world champion or like there are better athletes out there who offer coaching. Why, why is your coach, why is your coaching something I should consider over someone else's? And, and I, I'll just speak to yours. Like, I'm sure you got those questions too. Like you, your story is the reason why you can speak with authority. People who whirl out of bed and are successful don't necessarily have to always think about and psychoanalyze why they're successful. Mm -hmm. People who haven't, who haven't struggled to make top four or haven't struggled to come back from an injury or who haven't ground for 10 years trying to attain something, haven't explored every possible facet of why they are the way they are and why each style of training does or doesn't work. People who are just naturally dominant haven't experimented with seven different diets and 10 different styles of mileage and volume and non impact mm-hmm. cardio and all these things. Like These are the reasons people should trust your coaching and trust the things you state in a podcast because you've had to find every angle in order to get where you are. Not yep. because your ceiling says you should listen to me. It's because what I did to get my floor up this high. Yeah, there's nothing. I couldn't agree with that more. You look at top level like athletes who have been the prodigy since day one uh, in their sport, how many of them have gone on to become great coaches? I'm pretty sure like zero. Or if they have, I mean, it's not, it's it's really in not just talking endurance training or OCR. It's, it goes across all, I mean, look at NFL coaches. How many of them were great players in their day? Maybe they were good or maybe they struggled or they, they, they were people who had to find a way. Not saying that we're never going to be the, you know, maybe could be the epitome of this sport. I sure as hell hope to. However, uh, the ones who it comes easy to, and they don't have to rework the inner workings of training. They don't have to try to experiment constantly with what they're doing. They don't learn as much, and then they can't project that and facilitate others to do the same. I agree with you 100. Yeah, percent I got a I got a message the other day. It said, "Loved your your non-impact training, you know, training through injury, that kind of stuff." Episode, but you and Kirk are injured a lot. <laughs> I yeah. thought, like, yeah, yeah, that's true. So you mm-hmm. could choose like, don't listen to us because we've had injuries. Or you could say, does anyone know more about rehab than these guys? You know, <laughs> yeah. and, I, and that's, that's up to people to decide. But I think it's worth noting that like, you are the culmination of the experiences you've been through. And the more bad things that have happened in your life, the more skill sets you bring to the table if you've gotten through all those. And I see now this interview did not go the way I thought it would because we didn't prep this. We didn't plan what you were going to say. But I have a greater appreciation for the things you're going to accomplish in the sport, knowing the things you've gone through. Well, thanks, Bracken. Yeah, you. Uh, I don't think I. I don't think we've ever even talked about my my past that way. I don't. I actually don't bring it up a whole lot because um, I don't want. I guess I'm a, I'm a little screwed now because we got listeners who are going to hear this, of course. But um, I don't like people to. I don't like people to look at me that way. A lot of some of my close friends now, Bracken. If I'm being honest, I don't know why I feel so unfiltered today, but. Um, they don't even know. They don't even know my history that way because um, I just like to worry about now and and moving forward with things. But you're right. We're the sum of all of our experiences. That's why when people are doing weird shit or crazy stuff or things I don't understand or people are doing things with their lives, like I don't judge anymore. I say, I don't know what lens you've looked through for years. Like you got to, I just, you do what you think feels right. Yeah, that's, but you're right. That's exactly right. The perspective uh, I have now, and you have now too, based on your upbringing and banging your head against the wall with so many other sports along the way. It's uh, it gives you perspective you can share with others, mm-hmm. and that's what makes a good coach. So, so the 
this seems like a natural time for you to to get out there the people who are have supported you the people who are currently have in the past like who, who do you have on your list of of people that are are the reason you're able to do what you do right now yeah uh right now well i think we should go back in yeah, my family for years uh especially when i was you know kind of down and out they god they were they did so much for me my mom especially my dad was a big supporter my sister still to this day calls the check-in knows how things are going like we and you'll have a race talk about like oh what went well what did execute and my sister and i'll have a race talk and be like oh, how was your breathing today how did your body actually feel like she knows that angle so i have that support system which has been huge my girlfriend just uh you know she tolerates uh my uh i don't know sometimes i, I get this crazy type a uh i don't know life going and she uh she puts up with it and i have some days i don't feel great still and she uh she's always there for me she's been a huge supporter um, as far as, uh, all this, you know, as silly as it sounds, a lot of people don't think Spartan, but Spartan's given me a way to go race without, you know, uh, give me something renewed to like focus on. Like if it wasn't for Spartan, I don't know what would excite me. So like, even the fact that the sport exists, like that's great. I get to race for free. I mean, I can't complain even though I'm not making millions of bucks, you know, uh, from that. And then, uh, if we're just talking people outside of sponsors, dude, having you to sit here and, you know, I think this has been a good thing for, for me and for you just to have this, uh, to focus on. And then my sponsors, um, VJ shoes has been fantastic. Uh, Matt Gorski over there is a genuine dude who uh, has been supporting, you know, you know, you know, Matt, and he supports us pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, Matt Moseman and Endurolite, uh, they take great care of me. Never ask questions, send me what I need. Um, their stuff is awesome. Uh, and then, uh, partnered with gone rogue this year and a shock, uh, energy. I do sip on energy drinks once in a while. Don't uh, hold that against me. Um, so yeah, so, so those guys, um, still wearing mud gear products. They've been, they've been great. It's been really fun over the last few years to like build a team of like supporters to say, Oh, I can be like a semi-professional athlete, uh, in my mid thirties has been, uh, has been pretty sweet. Um, so I think all that together has been really nice, man. They've, uh, they've been good supporters. If you haven't checked out any of those companies and I know some people bag on like gone rogues, like product, for example, I love them. I'm one of those people who just like love them. I have a bag every day. I don't know. Just, uh, I guess it hits me right. So, so those guys have been supporting me. Um, super thankful for that. Yeah. We're in a strange spot where we have, we're not professional athletes in like the, the sense of multimillionaire famous around the world, but we have a pretty cool support system in this sport that allows you to do what you love. And at the end yeah. of the day, like that's what matters. Are you allowed to pursue the things you love? And you and I are both lucky enough to be able to do that. Oh yeah. i tell you, I would, if it were just off of race winnings, I am at a net loss in my career as far as expenses versus income. It's because of a few sponsors that allow me to maybe break even or maybe make a small amount of money pursuing a passion. That's really what it is. So I think I know the answer to this, but my final thing I'm going to put before you is let's say the bubble bursts. Spartan doesn't recover from quarantine. It goes away and OCR is no longer a thing. Where does your next outlet lie? Where's your passion go? What are you doing for competitiveness Mm -hmm. if Spartan's gone? Yeah. Well, um, I don't think you become a tenured personal trainer uh, and stick with it as a career unless you don't actually get excited about other people's successes. Uh, You don't coach people with vigor unless you genuinely get excited about their successes. And, and I understand that one day I'm going to live vicariously 
exclusively through my athletes and through my clients. Um, I'm also really, uh, I'm business and career minded in the sense that I understand this isn't going to last forever. And this phase will lead me into the next. And I believe my next phase is solely coaching and putting even more focus on other people. Right now, I'm expending a good bit of energy on myself and my own training and athletics and a good bit of energy on others. But I will be able to shift that focus into full-time, you know, I'll still pursue this as a hobby eventually when the signs tell me that, hey, maybe maybe you're not top end anymore, but it's coaching and it's still, you know, I've had my personal training business now for 10 years. And so it's going to be more focus on that is exactly what it's going to be. Yeah, that's that's as altruistic as you can get. I thought you were going to simply say fishing. But, oh. <laughs> but, well, but yeah, don't. feel free to be be a better person. I, well, that's that's a whole yeah. It, honestly, and that's funny you say that is I got a couple of buddies who so I have this big passion passion for bass fishing, and I go do bass fishing tournaments. I did before Spartan. I fished bass fishing tournament leagues with my free time every weekend. I was out bass fishing. Like you pay money, you go weigh your fish at the end of the day, you get trophies. It's like this weird. It's just very exciting. Anyways, when Spartan's all done. Whenever that is, I will enter a bass fishing league again, and that will be another way in which I spend my time. So you aren't wrong. It's you aren't right. wrong. I, yeah. Oh yeah. I, I was I, I was thinking your pursuit of pleasure, but you're, you're all about the people. So I oh, should have known, Kirk. Oh yeah, you should have known. I think I think that you know you can get those race jitters, like the you can't sleep the night before a race, or like you know um, that excitement. Yeah. I still there's two things that give that to me in life. Three things. It's it's racing, Spartan racing. The night of a bass fishing tournament, I'm like a kid on Christmas Eve and once in a while to go deer hunting. There's only three things in my life that get me that excited. And if one goes away, I still have two more. So I think we'll be all right. I've always thought that the day something doesn't give me that anymore is the day that I no longer need to pursue it. Like the what gives day, you that? What'd you say? What gives you that feeling? Oh, racing, competition for sure. It doesn't even matter what. Like when I play men's league basketball, like I'm like a little jittery. Like the day before, I can't wait for it to get there. And that's just like nothing on the line, basketball leagues. And then like drive into there, I like my hands are a little bit like clammy. And like, I get up for this stuff, like competition yep. in general. Like there are, there are several things that when they don't do it for me anymore, that's time to move on. But as long exactly. as, as long as I get the pre-race jitters, I'm a racer. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. If, it, if you get people complain about pre-race nerves, I get so nervous and it's so miserable how lucky are you to feel that way? How lucky are you to have something you give a shit about that much that you still get nervous in your adult life? Like those experiences become fewer and further between like the things that really make you nervous, the things that get your heart racing, the thing that gets the adrenaline going, like anything you do in your life that makes you nervous, keep doing it. Excited or nervous. Yeah. yeah. I, I think about racing. Like I think about a relationship, like as a guy, and I'm sure it happens to girls too, but like when your hands are sweaty, your pits are sweaty, and you're shaking, like you're ready to make a move and kiss this girl, but oh, I'm so nervous. You think, man, <laughs> just get yourself under control. I can't wait till this goes away. And then you see people that 30 years later in a relationship can't even work up like the energy to give each other a goodbye kiss or something. Like you <laughs> yeah. miss those days when you were nervous to be passionate about that person. That's how racing is too. People, oh, I wish I didn't have the pre-race poops or I wish I didn't have anxiety. Yeah, well, in 15 years when you don't care anymore and you stop competing, you're going to wish you had pre-race anxiety. So love mm -hmm. it while you have it. Did going to agree more. Going to agree more. Anything else you need to get across? People you want to shout out? Um, I think I, I think I, I think I did that, Bracken. I, uh, I pre, I took this kind of in a, a little bit of a left field direction here, but I appreciate everybody listening and being patient with my story. I think, uh, I think we're ready to have some guests on next week. What do you think? I think so too. And this was 
This was a perfect time, I think, to do this because everything we say from here on forward is now framed by what people know about our past. And yeah. maybe we should have led with this, but <laughs> I think that that it will add some depth to everything we do moving forward because there is some framework for why we are the people we are. Yeah. So I, I hope they took something out of this. This was fun for me last week and it was fun for me this week. And I hope it was fun for the audience as well. Yeah, guys, thanks for listening. Thanks for being a great interviewer, Bracken. Not a problem, Kirk. You were a fantastic guest. Thanks. Thank you.